Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, June 25th, 2014, and you are listening to the Talking Comics Podcast. I am your host, Bobby Shortle, and I'm in the house with Steve Say. Hello. Mr. Bob Ryan. Hello. And on the line with Miss Stephanie Cook. Hello. So, so low, Stephanie. So, what is all the, what is all the big emotion? Hello. Hello. Not creepy. I don't want to look for like creepy Frenchman. Oh, well, you should have said that. Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Yeah. Hello. How are you? Hello. Let's all do the show this way. Yeah. All like uh, Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. See how many people we can offend. Well, like it. <laughs> Not oh, the man. offensive part. No. Well, you don't care about offending French people, Stephanie. It's true. You're a notorious French hater. I think. Well, no, just, I mean, <laughs> just parts of French pe- That's not true. I have lots of friends in Montreal. Just shut up, Bobby. Don't get me in trouble. With the entire province. Great. Yeah. Yeah, they are already an angry people. Look, I only insulted Jersey City once. It's true, but we have one of our writers comes from Jersey City. I know, and I apologize to Joey and the entire city. It wasn't my fault I played basketball there once in a place filled with broken glass and wine <laughs> bottles and everything else and almost got killed, but you know. What place was that? Jersey City, New Jersey. Yeah. To be fair, that could be any place in New Jersey. <laughs> There's a venue Football. in uh, Asbury Park that we dubbed the Shitbox. Oh, yeah? Because it was, they, there were basketball nets as the band was playing. They were like, oh, really? just, yeah, if you had wow. a ball, you could just start playing. It was pretty sad. Bleachers were the, were the seats. That's- so did you play Smells Like Teen Spirit? Uh, no, but it so would have been entirely appropriate. Yeah. It was a good show, though. I saw a couple of bands there. Asbury Park is a cool place. Yeah. It's a cool little town. I saw like Perfect Circle, River, oh, cool. um, Snake River Conspiracy, Filter, Drain STH. It was a weird show. That but. was the, a perfect thing of every other band you said. I knew who they were. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Drain STH was like a... Um, they were almost like a female Alice in Chains. Okay. They had an album called Horror Wrestling that was very akin to like the later Alice in Chains stuff. It was actually pretty good, considering all things. You mean <laughs> Alice in Chainmail bras? Yeah! <laughs> oh, boy. All right, so that's a little preview, actually, of later on, because uh, this week on the show, uh, we're going a little off-topic for our topic. We're going to be doing uh, top five lists, but non-comic-related. They're going to be top five movies, top five albums, and top five TV shows of all time from all of us. We also got uh, a few lists in from listeners. Oh, cool. So Sweet. B- read those off, too. It's really cool getting the lists in and reading, like because... Some of them were like stuff that definitely aligned with what I expect to be on some of our lists, and some of them right. were just like crazy off, off from I wouldn't even thought of, which was awesome. awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome to read those, and we'll get to those a little bit later. Well, my thread that it started you know, the top five albums, the albums went to are... so many bizarre places. Yeah, yeah. I started listening to some of these things, like oh, I want to find mm. out about yeah weird artists that. <laughs> 
that was actually Ooh, my inspiration huh? for really? doing this show was that thread because so many people seem to be so in- interested in, in doing that and writing about them that I figured it'd be a cool thing to do. Was anybody surprised so, by their list? Like when you were making it, did you did something make it onto the list that you didn't expect? Definitely. I mean, d- I definitely I had like I had the albums and the movies we'd done like four years ago, I guess, mm-hmm. for Fanboy Remix. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of started out with those as a primer. And then definitely stuff got shifted around and stuff got moved off those lists. And then TV show I'd never done before. Okay. So I definitely was not surprised, but I started, when I was going through it, I started making like rules for myself yeah, about what yeah, I was yeah. doing to make it easier for me. Because I, and I kind of just, uh, for TV, I was like, I, I'm not putting it on there unless it's done. I just, I just didn't put it on there unless it was done. It just helped me. Because I had too many, like, you know, like 6,000 shows running around in my brain. Hmm. And I was like, if I make it to stuff that's done, then I can just it'll make it easier mm. for me. It eliminates most of the other ones. So. All right. Yeah. Mm. But so let's a little preview. We're going to get to that a little bit later. Stephanie has all um, five of her albums are Nickelback albums, obviously. Bobby, I swear to God, I'll cut you. <laughs> I think on Twitter I said, I swear on Justin Bieber that I will cut you. It's true. That's what you said. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. Because only four of them are Nickelback. The other one is Justin Creed. Bieber. Oh no! Don't even start with me. <laughs> um, but we'll get to, Canadian. <laughs> we will. Uh, we'll get to those later. So it's all bare naked ladies then. If you're a Better. Canadian, I, I would admit that. I would admit no. <laughs> Rush, no. The guess who? Better. Okay. Tragically hip probably is more my speed. Gotcha. All right. So we'll get to all that stuff uh, later. Um, we're not going to talk about World Cup this week. <gasps> we're not going to talk about. It. We're not going to talk about it. It's too painful right now. We'll talk about it after this game is is passed. Too bitey. Too bitey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, amazing. Bobby yeah. was texting me. Yeah, today was uh was crazy with the guy biting the guy. But yeah, I'm talking about the game on Sunday. Did you see the the meme that's the the famous Jaws scene where Jaws comes out of the water and no. it's it's the soccer player? Oh dude. yeah, it's hysterical. <laughs> well, Greg Rucka tweeted. He, um, this is semi comic related. He goes. Uh, he goes. FIFA's looking for all the evidence before they make a ruling. And there was a picture. Literally a picture right after it happened of the guy who got bit holding his, like, with his shirt down across yeah. his shoulder with a bite mark looking like he just got bit, and the other guy holding his mouth. <laughs> yeah. I was dying. Matt Fraction was, like, blogging it, and he's like, motherfucker just straight up got bit! Yeah. And I was like, nobody ever say that soccer isn't hardcore. Crazy stuff. This guy, he got nicknamed the cannibal for his other antics. Have yeah. you seen the clip of him he's in the Mike Premier Tyson League? soccer. Yeah, he he bites the guy right in the front of the goal on his bare arm. Yeah. He just chomps down on his arm in the middle of a play. This Wait, is the so third is time. You gotta eat. You gotta eat. This is the third, third time, time he's gotten he's bit somebody on the soccer pitch. So wait, it was for Italy, right? Or you're Uruguay playing Italy. Uruguay. Yeah. I only caught like the last like two minutes of the game. I was mm. really excited that I got to the gym to see it, and then it was over. Mm. God it's damn the it! They changed all the times on me. <laughs> um. So yeah, but we, I don't want to talk about it too much, but we'll, there'll be a lot of either happiness or sadness next Tuesday after the Germany yes. game on Thursday. So we'll see. See, guys, that's, that's where it's going to be problematic because you guys are rooting for the U.S. and I am most definitely not. Well, that's your problem. I, but I mean, I'm rooting for Germany. So I mean. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but we could have a tie and both move on. That's exactly what we want. We want a tie. <laughs> we want to draw so we can move on. But we're moving on from the World Cup talk. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Bob, you brought something up when you walked in, and um, this past Monday oh. was the 25th anniversary of Tim Burton's Batman movie. Yeah, um, that makes me feel very, very old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, Bob. I mean, um, do you remember that summer? Do you remember what was going on? Oh, absolutely. Like? To me, Tim Burton was Beetlejuice, Pee Wee. <sighs> 
He's doing this? Okay, I get he has a vision. It's kind of dark. This could work. Michael Keaton? Michael (laughs) Keaton is Batman? Are you serious? And then the... Relax. It'll be fine. Watch. There's something in this guy's eyes. You're going to love what's happening as as it's coming out. More marketing for this movie than anything that had ever come up. And that was even before they signed Nicholson and everything else. I... I said this to you before, I made a dentist appointment the morning it came out so I could go see this in Huntington at a bigger theater. There was a line around the block at Friday, 11 o'clock in the morning. Wow. It, people forget, it, movie, it, it was, it's big, and you look at the number that it took in, adjust that for inflation. This is one of the top 20 movies of all time, probably, yeah. in terms of how much money it took in. And it was for weeks you couldn't get in. And it was a game changer. I love the Donner Supermans, and they're much more serious than the Adam West Batman television show and the production value is incredible. You'd believe a man could fly. Yeah. It's still a little winky. Mm. This was dead on serious. And the opening sequence, he's on the rooftop and he's holding a guy over the roof. You know, now I'm not going to kill you. I need you to talk to your friends about me. I'm Batman. Mm. Oh, that's it. I was sold. <laughs> Just... Brilliant movie, wonderful production design, great performances across the board, Danny Elfman's score. Sold, completely sold me on Michael Keaton as Batman. And it's the scenes of him as Bruce Wayne that sell me on Batman. Mm. Mm. He's you sitting get nuts. <laughs> right, get nuts. Right. I just watched it before I got here. I mean, there are moments he's sitting in the Batcave, there's just body language. He's mm-hmm. just sort of sitting and playing with his glasses and just looking sad, driven. And Nicholson, amazing. Even Bob the Goon. His name is what, Tracy Nelson, I think? Uh, it has some problems, as you say. I think of it as deadly serious, and you look looking back with what's come since in mm. superhero movies, it's it's not that. Right. Coming from where it came from, though, was complete, oh, yeah. complete game changer to what how the audience responded to superhero movies. Mm-hmm. And is it signing Nicholson? Signing an actor like Michael Keaton, who had just done what Clean and Sober, I guess he had done. Yeah, I mean, he was known for Mr. Mom at right. that point. <laughs> but he was not. He wasn't hired for that. They yeah, cast no. him because he Clean was, and Sober. He, yeah. Right. It, it's now something serious. We can make a real epic movie and spend a lot of money, mm-hmm. and people will respond, and we we all did. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, it, I was reading about it today or yesterday. It's opened at forty two like point five million dollars, which at the time was the biggest opening weekend yeah. uh, of of all time. Um. Yeah, I mean, I remember it. I, I actually, I remember. I don't remember the buzz around the first movie because I was, I, I was just a little bit too young. I was like five years old or mm-hmm. whatever it was. So like, I wasn't like aware of the the buzz. I mean, I was aware of mm-hmm. the movie when it came to VHS because my we got like the copy from the video store and we bought mm-hmm. the used copy in the video store because you know you didn't buy VHS then because they cost hundred dollars yeah. to buy them. Um, and it was really Batman Returns where I like felt the the excitement and the buzz, mm-hmm. and I was you know I was excited about it coming out because I was aware that that's what happened with movies. They would come out in the movie theater on a certain day, you know. Because before that, I didn't really have that in my head. But hmm. you know, I, I, I still remember, <laughs> um, you know, watching that um, th- that Batman VHS like a billion times, and they had that like commercial for like the Warner Brothers like like store uh, oh, for sure. it with B- Bugs Bunny and, and they were oh, like, God, yeah. 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 <laughs> used to go in there all the time in Manhattan. Yeah. Um, and I remember I just, that was like burned in my brain and like the, all the stuff with like the, the Coca-Cola like 
Batman partnership thing, yeah. you know, or whatever. <laughs> they had a commercial for that. Like during, I think it was a Diet Coke commercial. He like on the offered it on the tray or whatever. Um, I remember those things so clearly. Remember uh, the Batman show at Six Flags? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that was awesome. And the Batman ride at Six Flags is, yeah. is also awesome. But yeah, the music to me is what sticks out in my head the most. Um, you know, some some great scenes with you know uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Um, you know, there, it's just weird stuff like the Prince song sticks out in my head. You know, in the, muse- <laughs> yeah. in the museum. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> party man yeah um that that song that definitely sticks out to me you know um that moment at the beginning like tell your friends tell everyone you know that that kind of thing um great 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 moment you know as i got older and i started learning more about what batman was I, there was definitely holes that got poked in it for me and we talked about it before we got on the air but alfred lets vicky valens the bat cave which is <laughs> disgraceful yeah. and we talked about the ending in which batman shoots no less than three thousand bullets at the joker and misses him, and then he gets shot down with a single bullet from a gun with a very long barrel. Um, <laughs> that moment is bad for two reasons. One, because A, Batman is shooting bullets, which Batman doesn't shoot bullets. That's like the number one Batman thing. No shooting bullets. Mm-hmm. And two, not only does he shoot bullets, he's horrible at shooting them. Like, <laughs> yeah. He misses him at every stop and turn. Um, so Maybe they're warning shots. May- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 4,000 of them. Um, but... I mean, that movie still has a special place in my heart because it was really the first. It, it defined what Batman was to me for, mm. I, I mean, I mean, until probably 10 years ago, it was what Batman was to me. Mm. It was the Tim Burton Batman. Well, it certainly sparked the animated series. Oh, even yeah. Though it was in development around mm. the same time. But the, the, soul, the whole look of a timeless city that's the 30s to the 70s oh, yeah. all at once really worked. Well, I believe the animated series premiered right before Returns mm-hmm. came out. So I think, if I heard, I remember the stories from Bruce Timm and, and uh, Paul Dini, it's, they started developing it after the movie because the movie was so popular. They were like, we mm-hmm. need to get this, you know, onto t- sh- sh- a way for kids to want to buy toys and stuff yeah. because it's tough to make the Tim Burton thing into into toys. Those but toys were awesome. They were, yeah. The, that collection was so good. Yeah. Now, my understanding is Jack Nicholson's deal, he had a he took a lot less upfront money and got a huge cut of the toys. All yeah. the toys, not just Joker toys. Yeah. Everything. His final payout was something on the order of 70 million bucks. Good mm-hmm. for him. So he never had to work again, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for him. I saw that in the theater. Oh, yeah? I saw it in the, the Corum UA. Oh, wow. With my mom, my bro- um, brother. I don't have a brother. Um, my mom, my sister, and my father. And uh, I think we saw it like two or three times, mm. and then we got it on VHS when it came out. I still remember like unwrapping the plastic <laughs> and just like, ah, oh, I finally have it. Mm-hmm. I must have worn out a VCR or two watching it. Yeah. Such a good movie. Stephanie, yeah. how about you? I love them. They're all silly, but, you know, <laughs> they're, they're fun silly. Mm. They're the good, bad silly. Well, also, I was that. laughing at the VCR thing. It was like, ha, 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 VCRs. Well, I, I, that's one I did not have on VHS. I had it on Laserdisc. Oh, I, had, oh. I, had already, I had already moved Movie up. Well, I, st- I still yeah. remember this stuff. I'm the second oldest one here. So. <laughs> Reading, um, I, I, I go through Tumblr all the time, and I saw this post from the Teen Titans uh, TV show, and there was a thing where uh, – Cyborg was talking about VCRs and then it like leads into this segment where they had to explain VCRs and VHS to the kids that didn't know what that was. And I was like, so sad. Mm. Be kind, rewind. That's a fun yeah, movie. No one will get that. No, no, it will, they will not get it. I, I always remember that being my mom being like, did you, did you rewind the videotapes? <laughs> They're going to charge us $3. Remember how they had separate, they had actually had like 
VCR tape rewinders yeah, yeah. that were separated from the VCR. Yeah, I had one that looked like a race car. <laughs> I remember that one. Yeah. I had I one that this. when you when you smacked it down and made the loudest noise. Yeah. Just this like this all this plastic coming together as one just like, chunk yep. like Oh man, VHSs. Gotta save that money. No. Gotta rent a little video. To, yeah. I used to record my favorite shows with VHS. You know, put it in the spare thing with a blank videotape, and mm-hmm. it was like the mixtape of TV. I still do that. <laughs> I remember. I, have, I hate to say that, but I still remember do that. Uh, in VHS tapes. It was a big deal to take the tape out and see what the sticker on the front of it looked like. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. like how are they going to display it? And then you got the one that was just black with the gray type. Mm. The fuck! <laughs> I, I want some artwork. Yeah. On. yeah. It's a little hologrammy sometimes on that little sticker. Um, yeah, v- VHS tapes, man. I don't miss VHS tapes. They, they look like some. shit. Oh. <laughs> they really do. All when I like, worked for my first movie yeah. store, we still had VHS too. Like, yeah, me too. I remember Kill Bill Volume One coming out on VHS. Mm. Oh wow! Yeah, they didn't. They stopped it pretty late. I mean, it, it went. It went on pretty long. It's tough. For, you know, it's just like DVD. When, once things are adopted that mass market, it, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to stop them. Yeah, uh, television set penetrations nearly a hundred percent, and mm. multiple sets in each home. VHS was up to ninety-eight. Yeah, every home had at least one VHS. Yeah, and I still remember buying my first one. It was third-hand used, top-load, giant steel jacketed, seventy-pound machine. Mm. Oh, and that used it was four hundred dollars. Oh my god, <laughs> that's wow. crazy to think about. It's crazy to think about. Um, so yeah, Batman, nineteen eighty nine, obviously a seminal movie, and and one of the reasons why the movies we have now even exist in in the first place. Um, yeah, what their franchise numbers have to be pretty good. You add all seven Batman movies yeah, together. Yeah, I'm sure they're ridiculously high, but I'm just not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure what the total number is. Yeah. Not Harry Potter big. No, it's or not James Harry Potter, Bond big. No, but up there. No, um, I you know more comparable to Harry Potter just because the amount of movies I think. Yeah, I think we're probably at like we're probably around seven, right? Yeah, for Batman movies. Yeah, seven yeah. Batman movies. Yeah, f- the four originals and then the, yeah. the three yeah. Nolans. Yeah, so we're at seven for that. Um, That's right. You guys saw the Nolan movies at about the same age I saw the Burton movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that first Nolan movie was a like a, really yeah, yeah like a yeah, was thirty. Feel like that I was, long ago. At all. I was thirty three when the Burton movie came. Oh, out. I was younger than that. Uh, I was uh, when when the when the first Nolan movie came out was it two thousand and four. Yeah, I mean, I'm 33 now. 2004, okay, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. yeah, I was pretty young. But that that movie, like, went... Because coming off of Batman and Robin, which was the last Batman movie we ever saw, it, that, that was, <laughs> yeah. you know, that was a, a game changer as far as all that stuff goes. But, um, so that's our little look back at, at Batman 89. I mean, if you guys have thoughts about it, please write in and let us know at Talking Comics uh, on Twitter. Um, so... A little news that came out today before we came in here, um, and this is on the, kind of the business side of stuff, but DC today announced um, a new payment plan uh, for royalties uh, effective July 1st. Um, and uh, I'm getting the story from CBR. It was an email um, from uh, Dan Tadeo and Jim Lee. Um, so this is, I'm going to run down the, kind of the, the basics of it. So under the new plan, royalties referred to as participation by DC will now be based on a book's net revenue through various distribution channels, including digital, rather than on its cover price. According to the letter sent to talent, this change gives us more flexibility to sell our material in new distribution channels that have different pricing models. Um, digital sales and physical sales, which were previously tabulated separately, will now be factored in tandem when determining if a book has reached its threshold to be eligible for participation payment. Um, and there's an unspecified threshold for collected editions as well. Um, 
And um, also, colorists, colorists will now be eligible to receive royalties and will also receive cover credits on issues they've worked on. Um, also, digital first creative teams um, are now also eligible for participation for the first time, having formerly only been paid at a flat rate. Um, so yeah, so th- that's a, it marks obviously a big, a huge change for them in the way they pay their creators. Um, Bob, what do you think when you hear this? I think they're making some really good strides. If there were troubles with editorial interference that, that had been gone on, this is the kind of thing that evens that out. People will say, Hey, they're, they're looking at creators differently again. They're, they're respecting what our work is. The color is particularly here. Uh, very, very positive move with the vertigo coming back too. Mm-hmm. I think they're changing the tone over there. But very, very well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, obviously the colorist thing is big. I'm mean, obviously we, we've noticed uh, this. I think over the last couple of months, especially, you know, all the Marvel books have the colorists on the cover. Um, and I, I don't even know if that's contractual for them over there mm-hmm. or not. Um, I don't know that much about their business model. But we've on DC that obviously they're not there, um, and this this will obviously change that. Obviously, and the royalties as well. I mean. Uh, a few, I think it was a few months ago. Now we mentioned, uh, you know, Yannick Paquette speaking mm-hmm. out, um, and, and you know his thing was it's excessively difficult to secure the best colorists for DC projects because of the fact that they don't pay them royalties and they don't credit them on their books. Stephanie, what do you think about this? I think it's great. Um, I don't know. Again, like what you said, like I don't know uh, how this falls like with Marvel, Image, um, other companies in terms of royalties uh, and all that. But I think it's a really positive step in the right direction. Uh, unfortunately, you know, just saying, look at this stuff we're doing for colorists isn't really enough. You know, letterers kind of need a lot of recognition, too. And I think as a show, we tend to kind of fail to give that recognition. But um, it it goes without saying that without the right letterer or with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, a whole book can fall apart because that's what you're reading to tell the story. And if the person doesn't know what they're doing, you know and the words are jumbled or if like things just don't fall in the right place that really could throw things off. Um, Mm. so the next big step is obviously giving, I I know that's a lot of names to put on the cover and a lot of money to give away to, you know, various people, but it's money that they deserve to have. Mm. And the colorist is again, a big thing, but you know, letterers should be on that list too. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I think it's, Obviously, it's. I think it's tough in the comic book industry because until recently, we tend to just focus on those the two biggest names in the in the on the list and then go away. And I think um, everyone has been trying to to be more focused on the other names on those lists. And colorists obviously are such a huge part of what the book looks like. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the impressions you leave after reading a book are you know what the colors looked like. Mm-hmm. And and I think that being able to now separate that out between this art team is I think a really big deal. I also love the fact that these digital first um, creators are getting a, a, now a, a cut of royalties from their work because I, I can't imagine that the Injustice book didn't sell like mad for DC. I mean, I, in fact, we know it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we, we, we know the print numbers for it. We don't even know the digital numbers on it, which I'm sure are extremely mm-hmm. high. And the fact that Tom Taylor probably got paid a flat rate for that and then not given any royalties on top of that same thing for whatever artist works in the book. I, I think the artists have been a little inconsistent, so I don't know how that works with stuff like that. But, you know, Tom Taylor has been there since the beginning for a wildly accessible book for DC and probably has gotten a lot less money than he really deserves sure. for for that. Um, Going back to, can I just add yeah. on to the colorist thing for yeah. one second? Um, you know, especially like colors, I think, have 
become more important to notice now in the digital age. You know, like a, a lot of the when everything was done and photocopied and you know printed, the colors really obviously were a lot more toned down. But now the colors play a far more important part in how the book looks art wise. Yeah, and it was definitely long overdue for them to get their you know their the recognition. Due. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. And I I think going towards a net model is obviously a great move because, uh, you know, it could, it could have its benefits and could have its its detractors. But the basic point of it is if your book makes a lot of money, you're going to make more money and it has nothing to do with, you know, how much they're selling it for or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's purely on the amount of profit they make after their bottom line is taken into account. That's what you get to decide how much you make now. And that's great. You know, that, that, that's, that, makes the people who make successful books make more money. So and with the, the direct market model, there's less chance for creative bookkeeping. Right. It's not going to disappear in returns. Mm-hmm. Well, we shipped out 500,000 copies, but got back 600,000 copies or some other crazy thing because of the covers being torn up. There are no returns anymore. Yeah. See, what do you think mm-hmm. about this? Well, I mean, it's something that should have been going on for like forever, mm-hmm. right? I mean... Everybody that contributes to the book, in my opinion, should be on the book. Um, mentioning all of the people involved, all the primary artists and letters and stuff like that is obviously something that I have to work on in regard to you know reviewing the books and talking about books um, that will come in time. But as far as the companies go and as far as the creators go, I mean, you could do something as simple as like you're looking at the Wicked and the Divine right now. Mm-hmm. You have the last names of three artists is that three up top no it's four actually all right so there you go it's even more than that anybody that fits i mean i'd love to put everybody on the front but that's what they have credits for there's a letterer right yeah, the letter is what on i'm saying is like cow. you you could totally fit all of those primary people on the cover without it being too intrusive mm-hmm. if you do it creatively no problem yeah um everybody who works on a book as a as a complete unit as a thing that you pick up and buy and read when you pay those prices, those three ninety nines and those four ninety nines and five ninety nines, those people, everybody that created that book is responsible and should get their cut. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really nice to see DC making some steps towards having that happen for their creative teams because I think they need to instill a little bit of confidence um, in the people that are, are working for them. They've had some shakeups and stuff in the past couple of months, and I just think it's a it's a good way to go about it and let people know that they're going to work at something to make sure that they get their their pay and they get what's coming to them for these books. Yeah, absolutely. But what's really interesting is when I was a kid, many, many, many centuries ago, <laughs> some people signed their work in the golden age, not a whole lot, but they were recognizable by their style. In the 60s, DC had no credits, mm. none. Bob Kane signed, well, someone signed Bob Kane's work on Batman, whoever happened <laughs> to do it. Stan Lee started putting credits in the books. It started with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and then it was inkers and letterers. Mm. And you got to know, and it gave all of them goofy nicknames, you know, mm. Artie Simak and all these people, you know, Slammin' Sammy Rosen, who was a letterer, and Joe Sinnott, and so on and so forth. No credits in books. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're getting there. Yeah. Still not there enough because credit's good, pays even better. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that. Obviously, it's it's a complicated model because you have to decide in some point who because if the book's making money, um, it, it's not. It's honestly, and this is just reality. It's not making that money 
based solely equally off of every member of the art team. You know what I mean? Like a book like *The Wicked and the Divine*, you know, um, the the letterer and the colorist definitely are a reason why the book looks so great and and works the way it does. But people come are coming into the store because of the two other names on the book, mm-hmm. right? So there has to be. I, I'm sure there is this. I'm sure there's a a, a weighted model for who gets royalties and and, and how mm-hmm. much. But I think it's it's something that's uh, I don't envy the people who have to figure that kind of stuff out because it's 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 got to be a, a really really tough thing to do. What's the formula on a book where let's take Sandman where the lettering is as much a part of the art right. as is anything else, mm-hmm. or actually even the new Silver Surfer this month mm-hmm. where it's the same sort of wow it really changes the mood yeah because of the way the lettering is in this so is that letterer extra five percent that month or? yeah or are they even getting paid because of how good they are i think they're getting more uh, or just because of how much money they're bringing in i don't know how that stuff works do you know if when people do letters because i haven't talked to very many letterers Mm, at all um do they have to manually like physically put the letters into the panels and into the pages or do they maybe they create a font and then they scan them in and they use a computer program to make you know because they a lot of letters it always looks the same it always looks perfect i don't know if that's just skill or skill it is you need to see like there's a lot of uh like i spend a lot of time on tumblr (laughs) and there's a lot of artists there and they'll post a lot about the process and they'll Mm. do a lot of do's and don'ts you'll see circulating for letterers and you get to kind of see via artists sharing with one another um how lettering can go very very wrong wow that's awesome i'll see if i can find the link and i'll show you yeah i'd be interested to read that Um, because i really until now i've never really thought about it mm -hmm. yeah there are some computer programs for lettering but But, the best lettering is still done by hand i mean i'm sure there's a computer involved in the process Mm -hmm. but i don't think it's probably i don't think it's like typing into like a word document and pasting it into the just because like like when you see typos in books Mm -hmm. because i i've I've come across it's not it's not it's rare but there have been books where i'll come across one that has like three Mm. And they're pretty noticeable and mm. pretty major. But and these are big. What's up? Sorry, you finished. No, I'm just. I'm like these are these are big books. I just mm. if you're physically manually doing it yourself, how something like that could slip by when you're. But that's not a letterer's job. That's the editor's job. You get to catch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. anyone like you and I, we write. I guess sort of air quotes professionally. Like we've, we've been paid to write Mm -hmm. is my point. And there's not a way in hell that we haven't made typos. And no matter how many times we've edited, you know, our pieces, it's still got errors in it. That's why we have editors. You know, it doesn't matter that they're looking over that piece and thinking, gee, Willikers, this looks perfect. (laughs) You know, like there's always going to be something that you miss because it doesn't trigger in your mind that that's an error. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure that there are different processes different people. I'm sure that in some of 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 those books that come out very, very quickly, that the lettering process is probably different Mm -hmm. than a book that comes out monthly or an indie book that has time to be done in advance. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure there's differences. Between you know who does what and what does what, but well, I mean I'm there. We should probably interview a Man, couple letterers. Imagine getting a word bubble that's not big enough. We should have like Ed Brisson on the show sometime. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rachel Deering and... as well. Yeah, she yeah. does a lot of lettering. Yeah, absolutely. And and these are all, it's they're cool because they're people who do also write you know yeah, books as well. Yeah, different kinds of things. Yeah, so they have you know they have I you know ideas from both sides of the aisle and all that stuff. So yeah, we should definitely talk to some letterers and see what they what, what their process. Letterer are. week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brainstorming in the works. <laughs> um. All right. Cool. 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 So uh, that's it for um the the news section. Let's move on to our lightning round. Um. Yeah. Where we have three minutes to talk about 
some books that we've been reading. Steve, you've got a very sparsely dressed man <laughs> in front of you. Yeah, I got like two words to say about that book. All right, why don't you tell us about it right now? Lightning round, go. All right, so the book Bobby's referring to is actually Flex Mentalo by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. And I'm going to read everybody's damn name on this thing and waste my time. <laughs> I can't find their names. Anyway. Here, I'll look for them while you talk. You look for them. Um, I'm just going to say really quick, read Doom Patrol, apparently, before you read Flex Mentalo, because I read this book, and I thought it was neat, and there were aspects of it were really cool. I didn't understand it worth a damn. Uh, apparently, you will have, have, have had to have read Doom Patrol in order to really appreciate it and understand it. Fun book. But holy hell, was I confused. Uh, Peter Doherty on colors and Ellie DeVille on letters. There you go. There is no ink because Frank Quietly does inks and pencils. All right. Um, I actually got to f- read and finish. I went back to number one and read all the way one through five of Furious by Brian J. L. Glass and uh, art and colors by Victor Santos. And it turned out to be good, but it, it didn't feel complete to me um i feel like i didn't get enough of her backstory um the end felt like a little rushed like they did a lot of really good character building and there was like definitely an arc for the character and you felt like they had learned a lesson and they were a changed person by the end but i feel like we kind of flipped a switch with somewhere between four and five to get there and it just wasn't wholly satisfying Definitely a cool series if you want to check it out. You want a female hero kind of like a la Kick-Ass that is a bit gory, but uh, has a a lot of heart to it, too. Uh, And also Sex Criminals by Matt Fraction and, um, oh my god, Chip Zdarsky. Almost forgot his name. Um, Yeah, so the honeymoon is over, as they tell us in the book. Do I still have sound? You're good. Yay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just a really sex criminals has come back after a small hiatus and has got a different vibe to it. And it's a little sad, but it's also really interesting because I'm very, very happy with the idea that this book is kind of taking a couple of risks with its tone and with its characters and placing its readers in a position of, of really being uncomfortable and being left in this position where you are fearful of what you know the future of these two these two characters are and i really admire the book for that for shifting so dramatically after coming back from the break and making me think differently about the book moving forward and it's not just the same joke fest that it has been for the past five issues uh yeah i uh, i totally agree you had 20 seconds left by the way that's the best thing you've ever done with the, the 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 lightning round but uh, i'm gonna say um section 06 yeah i was wholly surprised but very pleasantly so um by the fact that it did something i did not expect which was to change yeah. up its tone in, in a big in a big way um i was really impressed by it and i loved the parallels to like real world kind of relationship stuff in this crazy ass you know yeah. c- come world having universe that we live in well i like the the shadowy john uh being kind of you know your your ghost narrator through this Mm. whole situation Mm. kind of taking you through the paces of how they got to where they are yeah and there's while sex criminals is so fantastical and it's, it's so ridiculous and out there there are things about it that are very real and one of those things is the relationship and even in a relationship that's as playful as john and Susie's, you're gonna hit bumps in the road and even though I think ultimately it's going to work out, 
um, we're seeing this in, in another book as well, where relationships have bumps in the road. And sometimes you go your separate ways and sometimes you lose the magic and you have mm-hmm. to find a way to work together to get it back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we are with sex criminals already. And I mean, stuff's heating up all over the place from the people that they met in the last arc and they're still making trouble for them and looking over their backs and there's really nowhere for them to hide. Yeah. And uh, just keeping the book super interesting and making me crave it, you know, every month all over again. So it's really cool when something comes back strong. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's it was great. Still, can we also like go ahead? Oh, what's up? Our listener Kelly Heron went to Kiro's Con on the weekend. Oh God, yeah, and made the most amazing crocheted brimpers for Chip. Yeah, <laughs> which um, like I got to see photos of it, and I'm sorry if Kelly, this wasn't supposed to be shared, but I think they're amazing. So she, I'm sharing it. She's, she's yeah, well. Yeah, put them up on the post. Matt, Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky have already confirmed that she'll be in the letters column oh, uh, nice. in one of the issues oh, to come. You're, you're right. She did say that. Yeah, and um, apparently one of the editors at Image or somebody that works on the book wants a set of them for his desk. Oh wow! For oh, inside, and the, um, they're going to be uh, printing Kelly's uh, like Tumblr information. Uh, for her to do commissions oh, for cool. people. Wow. So yeah, it was a really, I mean, she'll she'll probably tell us about it the next time we talk to her, mm-hmm. but it was a huge, huge day for her. That's awesome. And uh, I was so happy. She was tweeting me the whole time and mm-hmm. I'm just like laughing my ass off that she's like making a mark for herself as an artist with crocheted cocks and yeah. tits and shit. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh my God. She was like sending me DM pictures of the process mm-hmm. and I got to see like she made one already and the boobs were wrong. So she had to do it all over again. She's like, these boobs aren't good enough. She sounds like a character from a Grant Morrison book. (laughs) Should I be putting that Captain Marvel she made for me up on eBay now that she's famous? Not yet. Not yet. Wait wait a little bit. Wait Wait till the speculator market drives it up a little bit and you can can dive in on that. Um, All right. Stephanie, you ready to lightning round? I guess. All right, here you go. Hold on, what am I talking about? Oh, God. Okay, carry on. All right, and lightning round. All right, so I checked out Aquaman and the others. I know we're a few issues into it now, uh, but I've just gotten around to it. Um, I don't know what I thought this book would be, but I have to say that I don't know. It felt like the only reason it existed was to be a tie into uh, Future's End. Is that that's a thing? That is a Future's End um, is a thing. Okay, I, I was trying to remember if that was its title. Anyways. Um, it, it did a nice build-up, was interesting. It tied into the an Aquaman story that happened in the main Aquaman book. And then just, you know, at the end, there was actually, like, a thing that was like, stay tuned, future's end stuff. And I was like, and I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> um, so interesting premise. Like the characters, like seeing different people being used. Um, but I don't know. It's Dan Jurgens, right? As a writer? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's well written. I just don't want anything to do with an event. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I started to read was Preacher, um, which is obviously a big deal. Doesn't really need to be, um, you know, talked about in length. But um, I, I only read the first issue and I'm super, super, super intrigued. I've got the first four trades of it. And after just reading number one, I'm just, wow, I need more. Anymore. I don't really know how to explain the story. Like, um, a thing escapes from heaven and uh, takes over the body of a man, okay. a, a preacher, and he's just, you know, bringing his 
wrath to earth and there's there's a man that's been released um to come hunt him down hmm. so I, i've only read one issue not the first volume so I'm right still it's uh garth ennis and steve dillon right yeah was, yeah yeah so uh that's also being made into a tv show so i'm kind of preemptively checking out what's going <laughs> on with that um i think that's mostly it i haven't read a lot i'm still in kind of fatigue slash holy shit i have a lot on my plate right now mode <laughs> uh bob seems like you want to say something about the preacher stuff yeah what network is putting that on uh amc i believe yeah okay because yeah. it's a pretty raunchy book yeah yeah and especially it would have when to it came be like... out oh go ahead I mean, there's a character named ours face <laughs> who looks like his name <laughs> because he's if i remember correctly, he shot himself in the face or whatever okay so it you know it makes a mess um it's yeah it's a vertigo books i believe the show is going to be done with amc although i haven't heard anything about it in a while yeah um it was originally that that show has gone through like a very long development process it was supposed to be an hbo show at some point i think sam mendes was supposed to be wow like the director and kind of you know oversee it and then it got, it just didn't make it like in, out of development there and it got shipped around. And I believe it made a bunch of news a few months ago because it's mm. the, it's the one that Seth Rogen is like, he's developing it for AMC. Yeah, mm. correct. Um, yeah. Uh, he's not, he's not, you know, in it or anything, but he's, he's producing it for them. So mm. um, he made a lot of news because people were wondering how that was going to affect it, you know? So we'll, we'll yeah. see about that. But I, I'm could... suspecting maybe there's something else going on with it, but maybe not. Comicsology's had a big sale on it. Yeah. It's, there's definitely uh. something brewing about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Rob was saying that people, I think, were were buying up issues of yeah. it as well. So mm-hmm. speculator books. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, like starting again. Yeah, it's really cool so far. I just, I'm obviously not very far mm. into it. It's one of those things. Whenever I'm in the, whenever I'm like in Fourth World or or one of the comic shops, where I'm like, this is like something I should read. You know, it's like of a time where I wasn't reading books at all, and it it gets a lot of acclaim, and it seems very interesting. It's just, it's just it's like one step away from the top of my list every time I go to the store, you know? One of those things. It's like that movie you put in the middle of the Netflix queue. Yeah. You know you're never going to watch it. Well, it's like I'm never going to watch the conversation. It's, it's really hard because um, you should. we constantly have this influx of new things that we want to read. Mm-hmm. And there's things like essentials that should get read. And when Preacher was coming out in single issues, you know, that would be something that all of us would be picking up probably mm-hmm. like on a weekly basis and being like, yeah, we got to read this. Mm-hmm. But because it's out in trade, there's that mentality where we're kind of just saying to ourselves, Oh, I can get to that later. Yeah. You know, like this, mm-hmm. is, this needs to be talked about. This needs to be discussed. And then we kind of just forget to read yeah. things that, you know, are on that sort of essentials list. Yeah. That was my mission this week was to read things that I had collected and never went back to. And I actually <sighs> did that with three series this week. That's cool. Or yeah. you actually wanted to read. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the <laughs> that's the biggest thing. Um, all right, cool. All right, Stephanie. So that's Stephanie's lightning round. Bob, are you ready? Sure. Bob is king of lightning round. Lightning round. Go. No. First off, Empire of the Dead number five. George Romero, Alex Maleev. It's the last issue of this first arc. Then it's going on hiatus until just before Halloween. Okay. Now this is a book that could have gone just haywire. Who knows? Romero could pace out a comic book or what another zombie story would be like What's George Romero doing zombies as nobody else does. Mm. We have a a neat little extra 
Oh, I, I forget. I've already ruined it. There are vampires here too, but they're not the vampires <laughs> you expect. They're running New York. They're the ruling elite above the regular folks and the zombies. What we have here, some of the zombies are beginning to think. So we have this SWAT team zombie. Her name is Xavier, who can think, and we actually see her thought process. It's jumbled words and then a word in bold print. Bad thing and all stuff in between. She's made the move back uptown. She's escaped from their arena come through the subway tunnels with some of the smart zombies and some of the dumb ones who've gotten run over and stepped on the third rail and so on and so forth. <laughs> and it's it's leading to where we're heading next. There are some visitors from the South who want to take back the North since it's all a mess. Just a really fun series. Alex Maleev's art, incredibly dense and scary. And the colors here are by, ha ha ha, Alex Maleev. Yes. No, actually, no, it's Matt Hollingsworth <laughs> doing the colors this time around. Yeah, Maleev usually does. The trade will be out fairly soon. If people haven't bought this, you get a sort of a complete story. Empire of the Dead, number five. Avengers 31, Jonathan Hickman and Lamille Yu. Am I doing that Lionel right? Yu. Lionel Yu, yes. I'm close. Uh, time. The Avengers are in the future and time is running out and it's running out for me too. I sort of had it. <laughs> um, uh, one more, one more. I got to get the timer out. Harley Quinn, number seven. It's... Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor, and Chad Harden. It's a great Amanda Connor cover. The story is hysterical. The book is not quite there. This would be great with Amanda doing it. The story is just every month funny and great, but just not enough. Red Sonia number 10 might be the best issue so far, and there have been a lot of these. She's still trying to pick up the artisans to save a thousand slaves of some dying emperor. Now she meets a swordsman, Osric the Untouchable, because he's never been touched with a sword. He not only beats Red Sonia, he humiliates her. It takes her new friend, the courtesan Aniva, to give her the spark to make a comeback, and we discover there's another reason Osric's called the Untouchable. So if people have been getting Red Sonia, there's a trade that collects the first six, and now we're moving forward. This has just been, I don't know anything about Red Sonia. It's a character without many layers from what little I've read. Gail Simone brings it every time. Walter Giovanni's art, incredible. And you get all these great covers. I always have the Stephanie Busema fun cover. <laughs> but Jenny Frizen and how many other people have done great work on this. So Red Sonia number 10, and that's it for me. Do things continue to look bleak for her bedroll? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Needless to say. But she does drink a lot in this issue. She just needs a bath. Well, at least there's that. <laughs> well, she, she makes mention that, well, you know, if you'd like, I'll bathe. <laughs> <laughs> just a great book. Anybody else? Uh, Steve has read some of these. Anybody yeah, else? Oh, no. I've, I've, to read some? Ten's the only one that I haven't read. Okay. I am relatively caught up with. I love that book. The book is fantastic. Bobby? I read the, f- I read the first arc, and I really, lo- I really okay. liked it a lot. I just I haven't been keeping, keeping up with it. Stephanie, it'd be right up your alley if you haven't. I, I've read up to like the first arc and a half, I think, um, okay. after right she there. met the people who eat people. Oh, yes. They're hysterical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I have read They're all fun. Despite all the terrible things that go on and swords through heads and (laughs) skulls on pikes, it's fun. (laughs) We must have you for dinner. I mean, have you over for dinner. (laughs) It's exactly the tone of it. So that's it for me. All right. So here I go. Time for my lightning round. And oh, my phone turned off. And go lightning round all right so batman and raz al ghul number 32 the hunt for robin um 
very mixed bag for me. The art is absolutely gorgeous. The use of mm-hmm. like this, these dark greens and yeah. in the most, most of the entire issue, Batman is just a black cowl and white eyes. Um, and the interaction with, with, with race is, is awesome. Um, I, it, what they're doing and what they're, what they're teasing about bringing Damien back and using the Lazarus pits and all this stuff. Um, I, I wish they would either just do it and get it over with or not do it because the, 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 the the tease of it's gone now it's it's just it, it's it's you're you're drawing it out mm-hmm. which is a shame because the patrick leeson art is gorgeous and Pierre tomasi is a great a great great writer um it also looks like Raz is holding up a ibuprofen a huge ibuprofen cat tablet <laughs> on the cover that, that has damien buried in it um original sin uh, number four um it feels like we're now in the time of a Marvel event where they hit the brakes and they go, okay, we got to get to eight issues. So let's have some issues where people just kind of walk around and talk to each other. (sighs) Um, And look, the writing is Jason Aaron. The writing is good. Um, But when you start, you're dealing with murder mysteries and uh, universe changing events in quotes, there, uh, there, there shouldn't be a whole issue where basically nothing happens, where you basically could go from three to five and basically be okay with just the, this is what happened last time in Original Sin. It hasn't been very exciting. No, it hasn't been very exciting at all, which is which is an issue. Um, Uncanny X Men number twenty two, a really great issue with a horribly disappointing reveal at the end of it. Um, it's just one of these things where, and they've done it. They did it in Amazing Spider Man, and they do it here where they they build up to a reveal and then they reveal you something and they have to then explain who the reveal is because they know you don't know you know (laughs) um and it's just even after explanation it's like oh okay like the issue it was great issue some really cool stuff some stuff really moved forward with it but it it just the ending was not was not great um and really quickly daredevil the end of the first kind of san francisco arc uh really really fantastic um the, you know, end of our with our, our owl arc and, and uh, double cross, and it wasn't double cross, and just it, Matt being the smartest person in the room again, which is always just like a, a ton of fun to to watch. Um, but also with a you know being angry with a chip on his shoulder about you know some misconduct by someone who claims to be a hero. So really, really great stuff. Samney and Wade knocking out of the park, just like they do every month in and month out. And that's my lightning round. All right, plenty of time to go. Yeah, Look at that. twenty seconds to go. Um, I got through a lot of books on that one too. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to our books of the week. Steve, you mentioned some series that you had you had caught up with. Yeah, what, what did you catch up with? I caught up with Ghosted. Uh, that's Joshua Williamson. Let me uh, get. I didn't realize we were getting to this so fast. <laughs> uh, Joshua Williamson, writer. David. Oh boy, Gian Felice is the artist, and wow, they got some names on here. The colorist <laughs> is Miroslav. Uh, oh boy, you got to. <laughs> M-R-V-A? Merva? Merva? Merva. Merva. Okay. Sorry, guys. I, I'm really sorry. Mulva. 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 Dolores! <laughs> it's a little sign uh, reference for you guys. And letters by <laughs> Russ Wooten. Um, so if anybody's been reading Ghosted, the setup is this kind of con artist guy that pulled a heist over on a uh, casino has been called in by this billionaire, and he's basically asking the guy to go to this house and trap a ghost. He's a collector of all things odd and weird, and he wants a ghost for his collection. Him and a team of like paranormal investigators and psychics and skeptics and all of them, they go to this house to go and trap this ghost. By the end of the first arc, things go horribly, horribly wrong, and we're left with only a couple of characters by the end of that arc. There's a lot of people that 
don't make it. Uh, so Ghosted Six follows up with the characters that are left alive and the con artist, I'm sorry that I'm forgetting his name, but our main character has whisked himself away to an island where he's just trying to lay low and live out his days. And lo and behold, he's a very popular man. Somebody on the island recognizes him and word gets out that he's still alive and the people that he had stolen from come looking for him. Instead of killing him, they say, we need your help. Our daughter or our this woman has been taken away from us and we need you to get her back. Well, why the hell would you need me for something like that? Why can't you just... Leave me alone. My all my you know people died. Everything went to shit. We're even. No, we're not. She's possessed. We need you to go and get her back. You're the only one that knows how to deal with this kind of thing. And thus our adventure goes on. I read issues six through ten over yes, I think it was yesterday that I wrote them. And uh, not a whole lot to say, but just anybody that's been enjoying Ghosted or hasn't checked it out yet. Um, I believe both of the trades are available. If Ghosted Number Two is not available, it yet. is. It, it is. No, it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, totally worth picking up, you guys. This series is pretty awesome. It feels like something like an like a really long uh, extended episode of Tales from the Crypt, um, or like Tales from the Dark Side, or something like that. Um, the art is super, super cool. I love how consistent the art is. That it's the same person on every issue. So all the colors, all the, all the lettering and everything, like you never leave that atmosphere when you're reading it. There's no artist changes to, you know, screw, screw with you in the middle of the arc and whatever. Um, it has a really cool cinematic flow to it. It's very cleverly written and it's, they're constantly upping the stakes as you go along. Um, it's a really, really fun read. If you want something horror-based, but that's kind of light in tone um, by way of its main character and basically his attitude that's bringing you through the story, even while there's like big things going on, you play it kind of cool the whole way out, and it just makes for a really cool and, and fun horror story. So if you guys are into that kind of thing... You might want to check that out. His name is uh, Jackson Winters, by the way. Oh, the thank lead you. Character. Um, I'm, I'm, so, I'm to ask terrible you, with names. Uh, I read the first arc and loved it. Yeah. Um, and I loved kind of like the Ocean's Eleven meets Poltergeist feel of the first one. Yeah. Um, the way you describe this one, it sounds like it's a little different. I mean, is it is it more like a, I guess, man on fire? Like him going after it's, this kidnapped girl? Yes and no. It's one of those things where, you know, it... It, the the series got its start with him going into a haunted house mm. and dealing with a haunting and, and these types of things. Uh, Joshua Williamson finds a way in the second arc to kind of bring that element of the story back okay. in one way or another. There's different ways that you can do hauntings and different mm. setups. So it's one of those things where you kind of feel for this guy where he, 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 did, it, he did his due diligence he did his job. And now he just wants to be left alone. He's sipping drinks. He's got a little, you know, bungalow in the trees and just mm-hmm. wants to do his thing. And these people keep coming after him because he's the only one that knows how to deal with this kind of thing. Um, there's something special about him. I'm not going to reveal mm. it here, but he just he has a way of dealing with the undead in a way that no one else can. But uh, to answer your question, it kind of winds back to that haunting thing. And when he does go after the possessed it turns out to be something much more than that there are other mm. you know they have the people asking for them back it's one of those like they have other plans right you know we really miss her we really want her back do you mm-hmm. or do you want her for x y and z right yeah he finds mm-hmm. out that changes the game 
and now the whole the whole platform of his of his mission has changed. Right. So, and, and this whole second arc is is that uh, Miroslav Merva, Merva. <laughs> Um, how does it, I mean, the first arc was, uh, Gordon, I can't, I can't look up his name because Gordon Suzuka was the first, fi- first five mm-hmm. in the first arc. Um, how does, do you, do you think the arc compares favorably to the, the first arc? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's definitely similar. It's okay. not, it's, it's similar enough where, you know, you're not going from, you know, Felipe Andre to Stuart Eminem or right, something yeah. like that. You know, it's not that drastic. Uh, and they've managed to find an artist that totally fits that world and that vibe. Like stepping into it, like you just reminded me that it was mm. a different artist. Mm. I didn't even remember because it's the feel of it and the the tone of it and the characters. Everything carries over into this next arc and stays solid all the way through. Cool, awesome. So between this and Sheltered, I mean, he's got Sheltered is. I, if I had to pick one, I would say Sheltered. But he's mm. got. Two really, really phenomenal, uh, different books. Ed Brisson writes Sheltered. Then who am I? What else does uh, Joshua Williamson do? Uh, Nailbiter. Nailbiter. That's yeah, the, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a little bit spaced. <laughs> I'm so excited did to do, do our list. Did you do that Masks and Mobsters thing, or did he you does. just say that? No, he did that yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm so excited for the list later that I'm like spacing <laughs> out over here. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, my other my my favorite book of the week. The other thing I wanted to talk about is Hellboy in Hell by Mike Mignola and Dave Stewart, um, uh, of course, put out by Dark Horse Comics. Uh, I haven't read a whole lot of Hellboy. Most of the Hellboy that I've read is either because of Stephanie or because of the like one or two volumes that I've picked up. And it's one of those things that I always enjoy the hell out of it. No pun intended. I really, really do. And I don't understand why I don't pursue more of it. I think I'm trying to kind of portion it out for myself like if I overdose on Hellboy, I could possibly just spoil the whole thing. <laughs> so I'm reading it in pieces. Hellboy and Hell was really something kind of special because I read them a long, long, long time ago. But there is so much Shakespeare and Dante's Inferno and like stuff like Macbeth and all of that stuff all interlaced throughout the story of Hellboy having died. I think he was swallowed by a dragon or something like that, and he goes to hell. And he's basically being, he's, there's a a murder has happened in hell and everyone that he's talking to is blaming him for it. He doesn't remember doing it because part of his memory is gone and he's basically making his way around, you know, the different sections of hell, talking to different people and trying to piece together what's going on. And there are several of them that have a grudge out for Hellboy or just, don't even have a grudge around him. Him being around causes problems because they're trying to rise to power and him being there and being heir to the throne and all that stuff and being heir to evil is a problem for them. So he's constantly running into people, getting into fights. Um, the, uh, the artwork, if you've seen Hellboy artwork and you've seen Mike Magnola and Dave Stewart together on colors and lines and characters, every single page of this story is drop dead gorgeous. There's like you can't get any better than this stuff for Hellboy stories. It's beautiful. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're into Hellboy and I didn't know it was, it's an ongoing, mm. I thought it was originally supposed to be five issues because there's a clear mark at five. And now we're into six. I read one through six and we're off on a, you know, more of the, the hell uh, exploration and stuff like that. But um, 
just another great, great story in the Hellboy line. I, I've yet to read anything involving him that I didn't really enjoy. So um, probably the next time that I go out to Canada, I'm going to try to raid their Dark Horse section, see what I can find. I always find like volumes three and four mm-hmm. of something. I can never find one and two. <laughs> right. Because they like to get you to go over the stacks and buy for full price yeah. the whole thing. And then they put the other ones in the used mm-hmm. section. It's like curses. Yeah. <laughs> Retail. But, yeah, no, I don't I believe me, I don't have I don't mind paying full price for a book, but sometimes when you see that that used section and they got <laughs> the other ones there and you're like, ah just want it. Yeah. But um yeah, Hellboy in Hell. Definitely check it out. Even if you, you know what? Even if you've never read Hellboy before, you can read this. They give you one page, a really, really nice recap in the beginning. Basically get all of Hellboy's uh, history within two paragraphs and you can just go forward. This seems like if there was a jumping on point for Hellboy going forward as a character, this would be the story that you want to read for whatever he ends up doing later. This is going to be it. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So... Bob, what do you got for us? I'm off in space today. All right, like so, usual. Well, this is also very true. <laughs> Where we'll begin is Silver Surfer number three, which is Dan Slott, Michael and Laura Allred, and Clayton Cowles on letters, and his letters need to be mentioned because it's <laughs> yeah. pretty stunning what gets done here with some of these very cosmic characters we have to deal with speak in odd ways. Where we pick up here, it's with Dorn Greenwood, who's managed to get the other significant others who've been kidnapped to be hostages while their champions fight to save the incredulous Zed's tremendous Empiricon, which is powered by the Never Queen's heart. Who's <laughs> Oh, I, comics. Oh, yeah. comics. And, and she's apparently the girlfriend of eternity, the living universe. Mm. Oh, comics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as you can tell, this series go, really just goes all over the place. Uh, the surfer shows up just in time for this. They have a little banter back and forth. He's depowered. So she doesn't really know who he is. Mm-hmm. But he, she's supposed to be important to him. And he's never met her before. Mm. So how this is all going to play itself out? She, she's just really an interesting character. We, we first met her as a little girl. She's helping to her dad run a hotel in Anchor Bay, Massachusetts, which is all pretty amazing. Now that She's a hero in her own right. Having done nothing, it seems like, even to herself in her own life, she now is thrust into this position of well, saving the universe. Because if the, if the Never Queen dies or but for not getting her heart back, she has this big, giant black hole in the middle of her <laughs> chest, which can only be drawn by the All Reds. It's really amazing how she manages to work. All possibilities will end. Mm. So th- there's real threat here of something bad going on. There's just tons and tons of humor here as as Norrin and Dawn find the heart. It really is a giant heart. He says, but it, it's infinitesimally small and infinitely large at once. So don't worry, you'll be able to hold on to it. Now, if anyone's seen the cover, we had this in our cover of the week, it's the surfer and Dawn being attacked by one of those symbol monkeys. Yes. Mm-hmm. Staple of horror movies. Right. Um, monkey shines. <laughs> this This is... A representative cover. Yeah. As crazy as it sounds, this happens within the book. I'm just loving this. It is one of those things that it seemed like a natural fit. We, we heard Dan Slott say, well, someone's going to do the Silver Surfer. I should do it. Mm-hmm. And we're getting Michael Allred and Laura Allred to do this. Well, yeah, I don't care how much time I have to make. We're doing this. It is funny, and it's funny in the words and the dialogue. There's lots of clever banter back and forth. 
but there's great heart in this book too that you wouldn't expect considering what it sort of looks like. But it was really, we mentioned it when uh, we had Michael Orbit on here uh, way back when he was doing FF, that doing these iconic characters is a step up for him that he felt he had to change what he did a little bit, step up his own game. And as great as his art always was, there's something new happening even here over what was happening in FF. There's genuine... There's a moment here where the Never Queen is showing her, showing Dawn the possibilities and her past, and she's sort of flying on the board looking down at her, her twin sister doing stuff, and she's not, and she's staying behind. And there's a sadness in her body language that's just so perfectly done. Guys, there are only three issues in here. I'm sure they're still around in your stores. Pick up the Silver Surfer if you haven't been. Anyone else? Oh yeah. Reading? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Mark Wade actually said he said it's the he think it's the best thing that Dan Slott's ever written. I saw that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he said that and he you know he said that's saying something. Um, so he said he's jealous of the fact that he is writing it and he does, he is not writing the book himself. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's great. It's crazy. It, it's you know I I of the things I've read of Dan Slott, which is mostly Spider Man, a little bit of She Hulk it feels even very different for him. You know, it feels a next level of kind of zaniness uh, that I wasn't really expecting uh, from the book. Uh, The art is obviously unbelievable. I I, I will assume that after this, Michael will will be happy not to have to draw the Empiricon anymore, (laughs) which is like the most complicated thing in the history of the world. Um, But panel layouts, obviously the colors are, are unbelievable. Um, and the story is a lot of fun. I mean, like it, it continues to be, uh, in the, in all the best ways possible, very doctor who oh, yeah. inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that moment, um, between the two of them when, um, you know, uh, Norrin says to Dawn, you know, it, it, she, it doesn't matter right now. And he, she says, everybody matters. matters, um, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great theme and it's, it's, it's a, it's a very prevalent theme in, in a show that obviously Dan Slott has talked many times about how much he loves, um, and I think that's great that they're bringing that to the to the to the book. Um, really, 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 it's a great book. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. Where else are we going in space, Bob? Star Trek. All right, we've done a lot of this lately. Yes, we have. <laughs> IDW, which has a license for this, has made. Uh, I don't want to say made amends, but sort of made deals with Paramount, which is CBS controls Star Trek at this point, to go back and do the original series. So apparently, a year or so ago. Uh, why uh chris real was trying to get harlan ellison who wrote the famous city on the edge of forever which is what this book is that i'm about to talk about and it's ellison's words and scott and david tipton doing the adaptation jk woodward who did fallen angel with peter david so it's very painterly and covers by juan ortiz and the cover looks like an old he did a series of one for each star trek episode of these sort of paperback covers mm. including stress folds and whatever i was gonna ask you if those were real or <laughs> those, are, those are drawn in from here they look totally real yeah uh, chris rio went to harlan ellison noted curmudgeon and my role model in life <laughs> and he said no i'm not interested in revisiting this because it's a painful memory for him which i will relate as we move forward and cbs said yeah, well maybe we don't want to deal with this and he waited and waited and came back to them and they both said yeah let's do this when uh, Star Trek premiered, Gene Roddenberry really wanted star, uh, science fiction authors involved, They'd give it some cachet, and wanted good writing in the same way that Rod Serling did with Twilight Zone. City on the Edge of Forever, if, and no one's seen the, the aired episode, 
Something bad, spoilers for the book and this episode, something bad happens on the Enterprise. Dr. McCoy accidentally injects himself with something that gives him hallucination, thinks everyone's out to get him, he goes paranoid, gets off the ship through the transporter onto this planet where they're having time disturbances. And it's a giant sort of word, I guess, is Horus, sort of big donutty, arky thing that is the center of a time displacement that's actually a portal to the past. Dr. McCoy runs through it. Time stops. The Enterprise is gone. They have nowhere to go. They have to go back to fix what's gone wrong. And Joan Collins is in this episode famously uh, long before Dynasty and after she was almost a movie star in the 50s. She is the focal point in time that changes everything. She's a peacenik, so to speak, that we are, things can be better. We can get along and change things, but it's the dawn of World War II and her being a peacenik stops us entering the war. The Nazis win. There's no Federation. There's no Starship Enterprise. It's all gone. There's a, there's a, there's an ending that had to get changed. Roddenberry didn't like some of what Harlan did. Gene Roddenberry ran around screaming, you've got Scotty selling drugs. No, he doesn't. The character here is named Beckwith. And when we meet him here in this book, see, I'm going to tie these all together before going off on a Star Trek rant for the next four days. The character is selling something called the jewels of sound. Ellison didn't write a story because you couldn't have sold that past network standards and practices in 1967. So it's this addictive crystal that gives people hallucinations and one fellow on the ship is going to, who's a customer, decides to turn him into the captain. There's a fight. He accidentally kills the guy, runs, goes off the ship. He's the one who goes down. Roddenberry didn't like drugs on the ship, didn't like the ending. I'm not going to spoil this ending, even on a 40-year-old show. The characters do act in their proper fashion. This is Ellison's I think it's his first draft. I'm not going to know till we're further in because I actually have, well, I have the photo novel and Mr. Ellison's screenplay. And luckily enough, I did have it autographed <laughs> many years ago with an, a pen that Agatha Christie owned that cost him like $10,000. <laughs> but he signed my book. What we have here, though, is a beautifully painted work by J.K. Woodward. Mm, yeah, it's nice. It's truly, truly amazing. The things that couldn't be shown on network television because they didn't have the money to do it, the budget for the episode was $185,000, <laughs> which is now the craft services menu. So the, the actual, the reason it's called the city on the edge of river, they get to this planet and discover a mountain range off in the distance. And there are actually cities on the peaks of these giant crystalline mountain ranges. Harlan tells a story that in the script he had written, around this plateau, there are runes. R-U-N-E-S. Mm-hmm. The, some someone in the art department, the, the head of the art department was sick, and so his assistant read that as ruins. So cr- put some Greek columns along the side oh, instead no. of giant rocks with with things carved in them. So it, it's now what we have is there's actually a and just instead of just a machine, there's a race of guardians who meld themselves. They're in the rock. They come out of the rock, and. I, can you do? Can you do a, a James T. Kirk, or, or shall I try this? Oh God! Okay, um, okay. okay. I'll, I'll, I'll. I maybe. You, go, you do it. Okay. Anyway, uh, as they investigate the, the plateau here, uh, Jim Kirk sees these fellows wandering on the rock. Who are you? That's close, right? <laughs> we are the guardians of forever. You live in that city. 
since before this, your sun burned hot in space, before your race was born. Only on this world do the million pulse flows of time and space merge. Only here do the flux lines of forever meet. Only here can exist the gateway to the past, where the time vortex of the ancients can work. Only here. And we were set to watch the time vortex so many hundreds of centuries ago that even we do not have clear memories of it. See, if I had done that, it would have been a lot more obnoxious. <laughs> it, 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 it's just really, really beautifully written. You're going to get to see what didn't make the air all those years ago. The script is here in all of Ellison's wonderful, wonderful language. All the drama. He could write these characters. He wrote them very well. Gene Roddenberry didn't care for it. Wanted something different. They're not acting like my people, so passed it through. Story editor Stephen Carabazzo's... Uh, Gene Kuhn, who was his line producer, who ended up creating the Klingons and half a million other things in Star Trek and really one of the, the main voices behind everything you know that's great about the show. And when Ellison wrote the, the book City on the Edge of Forever with the screenplay and uh, an 80 or 90 page essay about how things got ruined, he kept going, but the, he'd do another draft, even though Roddenberry said he didn't. So there are four drafts in here and changes. And he kept trying to make it work. Well, the ship has to be in peril. Why, was Harlan Ellison's answer. Okay, so he made marauding space pirates in an alternate universe, mm-hmm. and then Roddenberry complained that that would cost too much money to film. Well, you're the one who wanted it. I didn't want to put that in there. You made me put it in, and now you're taking it out. And it ended up, Harlan's episode that said it was unfilmable and a half a million dollars, the Roddenberry version ended up going over budget too, so he wasn't such a genius. And I love Gene Roddenberry, don't get me wrong. When Ellison wrote the book, they turned out one of his best friends, who is the Gene Roddenberry story editor, a woman named D.C. Fontana, actually did the last draft of it and never told him for 30 years. <laughs> so this is a five-issue mini. I'm going to buy it month to month because I just can't not have all these covers, first of all. And just the thrill of reading it in little chapters will be great. I'm sure IDW will give you a trade and give you tons of extra stuff. If you're a Trek fan and you loved what I was talking about a couple of weeks with John Byrne doing the photo novels, Try this one. This will really. This is another Star Trek episode you've never seen before. All so right, Harlan Ellison's "The City on the Edge of Forever." Awesome, awesome. All right, Stephanie, what do you yeah. got for us? I mentioned that I'm in that mode where I'm both behind on books and just have a lot on my plate right now. So, Bobby, we've book heard of your the excuses. Week. I know, <laughs> but we've I'm heard just, your excuses. I'm right. just saying, okay. It's a reason, not an excuse. That's what your response should have been, Steph. Thank you. You're welcome. I, what Bob said. Bobby. <laughs> yeah, Bassy right. McGee. Go ahead. <laughs> Bossy McGee? Is that like <laughs> Rumpus Magoo? Kind of. Okay. Um, anyways, so the first thing I'm going to talk about is, um, well, Bobby's book of the week is also probably my book of the week, so I'll you know, talk about that later. But um, The Occultist, which is a series that I believe existed um, before this miniseries uh, from Dark Horse. Uh, but the writing team has switched up, again, that I know of. I, I just read the issue, and I'm assuming there's lots of backstory, because it didn't just pick up exactly where, you know, like a number one should. <laughs> um, so it's the revival team. So Tim Seeley and Mike Nornan. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about a guy... <laughs> it was an occultist. <laughs> wow. That's it. Yeah. Um, End anyways. of review. Yeah. <laughs> um, he he fight he fights sort of supernatural crime. He kind of 
figures out what's going on and puts a stop to it. In the first issue, it's a miniseries, one of five. Um, he's trying to figure out what's going on in a spooky orphanage. And Is there any other kind? <laughs> no. Exactly. Um, and there are possessed demon babies on the loose. <laughs> and, you know, he needs to figure out what the shit's going on. <laughs> Anyways, so it was a really cool book. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of the actual story because that's just silly. <laughs> they, it's a really silly book. But my point being is um, it's the kind of book that you've come to expect if you read Revival. Um, Tim Seeley and Mike Norton are a really great team. The art's really awesome. And the story's really fun. And despite not having read anything of the occultist before, um, I thought it was a really cool issue with a really cool premise. Uh, the There is, again, obviously backstory that has happened, and there's a lot of references to things that have gone on before, like past relationships and some other things like that. But even without that, I was evil, evil, able, evil. able to pick it up and enjoy it. Um, so I believe there's a few issues of it out right now. Um, but I only read the first, I'm a bad reader right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just wanted to give an update on the book I was talking about the last time. Was I on the show last week? Yes. Yes. (laughs) What day is it? Are you on the show this week? (laughs) Yes. Um, so last week I talked about The Girl with All the Gifts, uh, by M.R. Carey, which again is Mike Carey, who writes The Unwritten. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out to be a really great book. I was so happy with how it ended and all came together. And I stand by you know, my previous statement that it's a really, really cool zombie book with a new and exciting twist on it. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. I wrote a review somewhere online. I think it's just on my Goodreads, though. Um, You're giving all the great information. I know. Shut up, Bobby. <laughs> the girl with all the information. <laughs> just <laughs> shut up. Just. I will oh, that was you. priceless. Um, you know what? Just you don't need my review because no, that was we talked really about good. it so eloquently last week. That's I am right. known for all, my eloquence. All about hungry. You, did, you talked they? about it very well last week, so don't um, ruin it. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, my point being is that uh, there, there's a lot of books that I've read, and like the first three quarters of them are fantastic, and then it all falls apart and kind of ruins it for me, and this book was great from start to finish. Um, a little bit slow at first, but uh, once you kind of get through the book, you realize that the slow uh, pace at the beginning of it is necessary to build up what's going on in the world and uh, with the characters, so if you're finding it a bit like hard to get through at the very beginning, just stick with it. Cause once you get through that, um, it really picks up the pace and you won't want to put it down. Um, and then lastly, I want to quickly mention the TV show, the strain. Um, this isn't out yet. It's going to be out. Uh, the first episode's out July 13th. Um, but I got an advanced copy of it from FX. Thank you. FX. And I just wanted to say, I haven't read the book, I haven't read the comics, but um, the show is pretty cool so far. Uh, Again, I I don't have anything to compare it to in terms of, you know, its source material, 
But I thought they did a really good job. And Guillermo del Toro actually directs the first episode. Ooh, yeah. And it's creepy. And, you know, they don't try and go too crazy with the special effects. Like, a lot of it, to me, felt there, there wasn't anything that just screamed um, CGI. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of atmospheric kind of creepy and build up to what's going to happen um, long term in the show, I guess. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I've got two more episodes to go through for my advanced things, but I'm going to be writing up some stuff about it soon. And I really think that if horror is, um, you know, your cup of tea, and even if it's not, because it's really not mine, um, you will enjoy it. It's a, it's again, it's another really interesting take on the vampire genre. And in, we get really inundated with all these um, supernatural TV shows, movies, books. And I really, really like the books that are unique and interesting that are coming out of this, you know, influx of them. Um, yeah. I mean, for how horrible it is, I'm not going to defend Twilight, but I still think it's cool people are doing new things with, you know, um, old superstitions and supernatural creatures. But this is not Twilight in any way, shape, or form. The strain is creepy and um, just really, really cool to watch. And I like the characters so far. It's It took me a while to place the main guy who plays Ephraim. Um, but... It, it was weird to see him with hair. He uh, He's the guy from House of Cards, um, the bald guy. Oh, the from, senator or whatever? Yeah, the senator. The congressman? Yeah, yes. Um, yeah. Peter. Peter, yeah. Peter something, which I can't currently remember the name of. But <laughs> it took me a while because I was like, who is this guy? Who? Oh, he has hair. <laughs> oh. And um, the creepy guy from... Uh, Harry Potter with the cat that roams yeah. Hogwarts. Creech? Argus Filch. Filch! Filch! Yeah. Not Creech. Um, he's in it. He's a crazy old guy. <laughs> I think uh, that's his jam. It's good. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what he does. Um, I, uh, it's funny because uh, there's um, a, uh, one of the guys I shoot weddings with. His name is uh, John. Um, his son is in the show. Ah, wow! Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he plays as uh, I can. I can. I look at the kid's name Zach Goodweather. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He plays Ephraim's son. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. See, the, so he was ta- he was talking about it a lot over the last couple of you know months or whatever. But um, yeah. FX had this really cool press kit to me, and it has this big book that goes through all of the characters and all of the actors. Mm-hmm. You know, aside from kind of the binding, it feels like this professional book that you'd buy at a store. And I was like, Ooh, I feel fancy. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really cool show though. And I suspect I'm not supposed to talk about it too much, but there's this one scene in the second, at the end of the second episode. And you'll know when you see it, but it is going to stay with me. Like it's so creepy. Hmm. It's so creepy. It's going to hmm. haunt my nightmares. Interesting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really cool show. My friends upstairs, they have, their cousin was a dancer in it, although I haven't seen any dancing, so I don't know. No, why? What? what <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. My um, uh, probably my girlfriend, her cousin is going to be in the second uh season of Hemlock Grove. Oh yeah, when that airs, yeah, cool. Um, the Strainiest. People don't know, just so that people know, it is. Stephanie mentioned the book in the comics. Is a book by Chuck Hogan, um, and a comic series also by Chuck Hogan. Actually, they're co-written. 
by Chuck Hogan is, and Guillermo books, del Toro. Oh, the books are also co-written? I didn't realize yeah. the books were also co-written. Okay. And so are the comics. Um, um, so. I hear really good things about the comics from Dark Horse as well. So, I mean, yeah. if if you want to check out what the show is feeling like, uh, I know, like, Ob, who's our PR guy for Dark Horse, as well as um, Jim Gibbons, I think they've checked out the first couple of episodes as well and are really digging in. I believe they've probably read the comics and possibly also the books. Probably. So if they're enjoying it, then, and you've read the books or the comics and are kind of, oh my God, I hope it's good. They put their stamp of approval on it. I do believe. Very, very assured, 70. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I saw Ob at least post about it. So. If you're worried about it, the people who had something to do with it coming out, <laughs> maybe up. said that it was okay. Just shut up. Stamp. Shut <laughs> your Justin Bieber mouth. Wow. <laughs> All right. So, that's the strain. Um, when did you say it was coming yeah. out? July what? July 13th, I believe, so, is when the 13th. first episode airs. Okay. Awesome. All right. So, moving on to uh, my uh, books of the week. So, the first thing I want to talk about... Um, I bought an anthology the other day and I haven't dug in too far into it, but it's the best American comics of 2013. Um, and it's compiled by Jeff Smith, who obviously created bone. Um, and it's a compilation of either whole short comics or excerpts from longer comics of, you know, just like it says the what he considers the best American comics of 2013. Um, the best American series is something that they do for a lot of genres. Um, and you can check it out, but this is cool. Cause it's really neat to have all these comics put together. And I mean, um, there's stuff from Alison Bechdel, Brandon Graham is in it. There's, um, there's some Rachel rising stuff in it. There's faith Aaron Hicks stuff in it. Um, there is, um, Terry, uh, we said, I said Terry Moore already. Kate Beaton stuff in it. Um, so a lot of awesome, awesome um, people, Paul Pope as well has, has a story in it and, um, it's beautiful. First of all, it's a beautiful book. I mean, all these great art styles mixed together, um, just scrolling through it. It's like stunning to scroll through it, but, uh, I just got it. And the one story I did check out was, um, the Alison Bechdel, uh, story, which is, um, excerpt called mirror, which is an excerpt from her book. Uh, Are you my mother? Um, and, uh, What's really fascinating about this read is it's there. There, all her stuff is autobiographical, and this is dealing especially with her mother. Uh, her mother and the mirror has to do with uh, some psychological um, tenets and, and theories that people have. And the book, the thing that came out with, especially reading this chapter, is it's like reading a entertaining version of a psychology textbook in a lot of ways because she deals very very deeply into the reasons why we relate to people the way we relate to them and the mirror has to do with this idea that to a baby before you see a mirror your first mirror is your mother um so if and especially for young girls so basically when you're looking in the mirror you're you're looking to see almost your mother looking back this is the theory or whatever that she's that she's talking about um and um talking about how we deal with our our parents and how boys deal differently with their mothers and with their fathers and girls the same with mothers and fathers and how that leads into our romantic relationships as as we go along and kind of the different ways people deal with things and she to say that you know, um, it seemed like she got a lot more criticism than um, her her other siblings, and um, she talked about this thing called I, I hope I'm saying it right cathexis, which is basically the investing of your 
libidal energy into something. Um, and this can be obviously something romantic or sexual with someone who you're in a relationship with, but also can be something, you know, basically investing the idea of this is my heir. This is the person who's going to bring on my legacy. People do not necessarily have the ability to invest completely in multiple people. So that's why they mm-hmm. end up having seemingly putting, being harder on some children other than others. Um, and she does this whole thing about now how people, when they get some people, reason that people become egomaniacs is because they they catharsis on their own feelings. So they invest all of their energy into sense. the way they think about things. Wow. And so even when they when they fall in love with somebody, it's not about it's not about falling in love with that person. It's about falling in love of your what you think about that person, your idea of that person, not the person themselves. Um, so I dealt with all the mm. stuff. And it's, it's a short passage, but it's incredibly fascinating stuff. Um, and it also, but it relates them to very real world things, like how she deals with relationships. She goes into an example of a girlfriend she had, um, and, um, how she kind of lost that relationship, even though she was completely devoted to them. Um, and, and how she, you know, just cheated on them for no reason, basically, but because of these, the, these problems she has, you know, w- with dealing with what she's, you know, investing that energy into. Um, and also ends with this kind of conversation with her mother, because the whole thing is bookended by her mother not being able to give her what she wants from her, but then her being able to, then at the end, accepting the fact that she's giving me everything she can. It, it's it's not her fault that, you know, I'm putting this onto her, mm-hmm. basically, this whole kind of thing. Uh, very fascinating stuff. Gorgeous to look at as well. Um, I'm lucky because actually I have both of the full books here. She's written, I believe she's written two. Um, she, Alison Bechdel is also obviously kind of most famous colloquially to people because of the, the Bechdel test, which is, you know, whether or not the, your story contains strong female characters mm-hmm. or not. Um, but the writing itself was really good. Um, v- like one of the most intelligent things I've read. I, I do not know how it holds up and how I could deal with that much of it over a whole book. But reading this, it was really, really fascinating. And I'm excited to go through this book and read all the other kind of different stuff that's there. Um, but the best American comics of 2013. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful, like well, nicely bound book. And it was only it's hardcover. It's only $25. So it, it's, I think well, well worth it. And that's full cover price. I have no big, idea. How thick much, book, yeah. Big, thick book. How much would be on Amazon, but I walked into Barnes and Noble and, and got it. Um, so I look forward to reading more of those and kind of being able to talk about some of the excerpts, excerpts as we go along. Uh, but Stephanie mentioned before, uh, how her book of the week was probably my book of the week. Um, I've talked about a little bit about before it came out. I talked a little bit on comics and coffee this past week as well. But uh, the Wicked and the Divine uh, by Kieran Gillen uh, with art by Jamie McKelvey um, with I don't know the colors. I don't know what Wilson's first name is. But letters by Clayton Cowles. I, oh no, maybe not. It's um, Matthew Wilson. Oh, I was right. You Carry were on. right uh, by Matthew Wilson. So this is a book I've been looking forward to for a very long time since they announced it. I believe Image Expo is where they announced um this book and it's one of the ones i've been most looking forward to and jamie mckelvey and uh kieran gillen obviously most recently worked together on young avengers a great uh short run on on that book and here we have a story a very interesting story about the premise is that there are gods they exist and i um was it every like 90 what is it 96 years or something like that I, I believe it is. Um, I have to look up the exact number. They come back and they basically inhabit for two years um, these basically teenagers, the young people. Um, and then after those two years, they, they die. They, they kill themselves off. Um, 
you know, um, and the slogan is just because you're immortal doesn't mean you live forever is the, oh. is the slogan of it. Um, and we, the first, the beginning, we get this quick snippet of the ending of the last visit of these gods. And then we're thrown into the, basically the middle of this new um, era of the gods. And what's fascinating here is that um, Gillen and McKelvey really frame the story in a very modern context. So these gods who came back who are inhabiting these bodies are basically pop stars you know they they kind of do these masses that are part mass part concert and these people come and they worship them and they have orgasms when they look at them and you know and and they swear their fealty to them and it's one of those singular visions that i i you know you you don't see very often from, from people um and I think that it could have gotten away with skating on this this clever idea and being and dealing with you know light social commentary about how we interact with these people who are on TV and who and who are talented and how we kind of worship them. Um, but it also introduces a interesting story as well a what is about to be some sort of mystery story um, because something quite awful happens at the end of the book and the gods are one of the gods is framed for it supposedly um and you don't know who did it you know who's pulling the strings in in the background um what i love about the book is that it doesn't stick to gods you may know you know it's not just it's not it's not norse and greek and roman there are shinto gods and 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 stuff like that you know aramatsu i think is how you say the name is one of the main Mm -hmm. ones who the reason the only reason i know that name is because it was a character in a video game a few years ago okami okami yeah um uh, really, really interesting stuff, and I, I will say a little bit more about it. But Stephanie, I know that you also want to talk about it. So, w- how did you feel about the book? I thought it was great. I thought it was a really interesting read, and I read the uh, Kieran's post at the end of it, where he did like a big letter saying that people were really disappointed that it wasn't a phonogram, mm-hmm. and bite me, everyone else that was <laughs> disappointed. You know, I, I have phonogram, and I've been meaning to read it forever, but I think the story is so great. It's so unique. And an interesting take, and you can really tell that it embodies uh, both Kieran and Jamie mm-hmm. and the things that they love, and they're putting it into a story with a really interesting twist. Um, the art, I mean, I love the story, but Jamie's art and the colors are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's just a gorgeous book, and I knew the premise of it from Image Expo, and I haven't really done a lot of you know, following of it. Cause I just, I like to be surprised hmm. and I was so pleasantly surprised, especially by where it went and how it ended off. Yeah. Um, there, there was a bit of confusion. Like there's, there's a slight case in some spots of like first issue where there's a lot being thrown at you. But I think that the overall quality of it really makes up for any kind of overwhelming sense you get. Um, at any point yeah i mean i think that we mentioned the 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 amount of information i feel like whenever i've read anything by the two of these guys the the first issue even the young avengers first issue it's there's like no quarter in that issue it's not it's it it tends to throw a lot of information at you and then fill in the blanks later on um and i i feel like that is a detriment and a great thing about them both because it leads i think to on first read sometimes not completely loving 
uh, mm-hmm. uh, the story because you're you're trying to catch up in your brain with what's going on, all the information being thrown at you. You know, tracking characters, who's who, who can do what, who can do who can do this, who can do that. Um, but what I feel like it does do is it rewards on multiple reads. You know, it gives you a reward for mm-hmm. reading the book multiple times. Um, the art is incredibly alive. That's the thing about the art that I think is, is so incredible. And uh, you know, you, there's without without anything, and there's there, there's definitely flashy moments. But even when it's not being flashy, there's something just there's so much personality going on under the skin of these characters that it, it's pretty amazing. And um, I I really just love what he's able to do. And he he draws like ridiculously attractive people. It's it's like, it's it's crazy, but you know, attractive and not like it's not in a glossy way. It's not in a um you know a way that's that's over the top. It's in a very real way. But it's just there's something just incredibly attractive. They're very streamlined. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jamie McKelvey, I think if I'm remembering correctly, first kind of made waves with um, Project Rooftop, where he redesigned a character. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this right. If, if I'm wrong. By all means, point this out in the comments or something. But I'm pretty sure this is so. He he did redesigned costumes and all that um, for big characters, and you know, I think that's his thing, like kind of fashion and music, and it really really shows how well he does at this stuff at creating characters and really unique looks for them. Mm-hmm. In, in, there's no character that I can say, well, that looks like someone from this book or whatever. Right. Like it, his characters are completely his own. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just amazing. He just does amazing work. That's all. Carry yeah. on, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I have questions about the book, which I like. I, what's special about this Laura, you know, character? Is there something special about her? You know, is she going to become kind of what that other character is in the beginning of the book? The one that's kind mm. of walking away from the building? The one that's kind of like, I guess, their... Uh, their agent on earth, their human kind of agent. Um, is she even going to be a character going forward? Like who knows? You know, that's the thing about the book. It's such, there's so there's so much going on that who the main character is, isn't incredibly clear at, at the moment. Um, but I absolutely loved it. It lived as my expectations a hundred percent. Love that the book had been out for three days when, by the time Saturday of heroes con started and there was already wicked and divine cosplayers at heroes con. <laughs> that's awesome. That's really awesome. They were waiting. Yeah. Steve, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't know anything about it before picking it up. I didn't, I saw the uh, previews art and that was it. Uh, Really cool. It's, I've read Phonogram. Um, I read the first maybe two or three issues of it and it's very, very good. It's one of those things that you have certain people that just make really amazing teams. Somebody like, you know, Gillen and McKelvey. And Matthew Wilson, obviously, on on colors on this mm. book is just knocking it out of the park. I mean, some of the the pop art uh, panels that mm. they have mixed with this like super sleek, beautiful, just stepped out of the salon mm. kind of look to it. Um, but yeah, McKelvey's characters, like Steph was saying, they always look so specific to their stories, and they don't look like other characters that I've come across in comics. Um, Mike, the thing that I thought about when I was reading The Wicked and the, and the Divine is the same feeling that I got when we started reading Saga, where there was this anticipation and this build up to something that was going to be really special and really unique and just important in the grand scheme of things of, of there being independent comics out there. And 
this first issue of Wicked and Divine feels like that first issue of Saga where we just read something that every month you're going to have to pick it up. You're going to have to keep up with the story and it's probably going to get pretty wicked. Yeah. So. Yeah. Super excited. It's the Wicked and the Divine number one. If you guys are um, on the fence about it or you haven't picked it up yet, if you can find it, definitely pick it up because it is awesome. All right. So that's it. We're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to come back and we're going to do some top five lists. Oh, boy. Be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh, Ruling the Nation. kind of a new record. Excuse very, me, I in a minute. Record. Very nice, Rob. A sly declaration of new classic status slipped into a list of old safe ones. Very pussy. All right, we are back. And as promised, we're going a little off topic doing our top five albums, TV shows, and movies. We're going to start this game off. Game. We're going to start this listing off (laughs) with our top five TV shows um, of all time. Again, this is all time. Um, We didn't put any um, rules on what could be here. It could be anything you want. You know, it's it's up to you. It's your list. So we're going to go around uh, round robin, and and we'll say a little bit about about each one, um, starting with number five. I'm most interested in hearing Bob's because I don't think I've ever heard Bob talk about any other TV show other than Star Trek. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to be here. All right. So, so Bob, you're number five. <laughs> the Adventures of Superman from the 50s. It's how I was introduced to the concept of superheroes in general. First two seasons were done in black and white. You know, it's George Reeves all the way through. It got very childish now that I'm a grown up. There's some of the you know, talking burrows and weird, <laughs> odd people. But when it was really good, the first season with uh, the original Lois Lane, black and white, crime drama, gritty stuff, lots of science fiction through the second season. The sixth season really picked up. George Reeves actually directed the last three. But he was everything that the hero should be in a television show, just forthright and honest and truth, justice, the American way. Adventures of Superman. Let me, I'm, I'm going to ask you one question. Sure. And this is, I think this is the interesting thing about all-time lists, right? Because a lot of it has to do with both how good it is and also how it affected you, I think. You know, people judge things. When you watch it now, do you still do you hold it in the same esteem? Or do you, you think about more like when you watched it when you were younger? It's both. Okay. When I see the bad, I now tend to gloss over it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. But I, st- I still say, what's you know... Mr. Zero, 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 minus one, the little Martian guy. It's not very, it's just not a good episode. But uh, for the, when Man of Steel came out, I did a long piece mm. about the TV show and George Reeves. And there, there's, a, there's an episode here in the first season where it's a little girl who has polio. Mm. And she writes a letter to the Daily Planet. And it's a, a sort of a trip around the world where Superman flies around the world. And I, I look at the clip and I hear the, the music, the famous theme music playing. And I still get teary. 50 years later. All right. So it still affects me in the same way it did then more because now I'm an old cranky man. All right. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Steve, your number five TV show of all time. My number five TV show is Batman, the animated series. Ooh. Nice. Yes. Nice. Um, such a staple of my childhood. After school, every day. It was the first television show, uh, animated television show, to just really really have an impact on me and feel so epic the art was incredible uh the writing was spot on 
and it has has since become the show that I hold up and judge every other animated like episodic animated show afterward. Mm-hmm. Everything goes back yeah. to Batman the animated series right. and does this even come close? That's mm-hmm. the gold standard. Really yeah, is. Uh, and there's only one other series that has even come close to being as good as Batman. So, all right, there you go. Okay, Stephanie, you're number five. Um, so we were talking before the show about you know the was this during the show about the ways you eliminated that was during the things. show. Oh well, <laughs> who can keep track of these things? <laughs> I don't even know. What it was a whole hour is. ago. <laughs> Anyways. There was so, a break in between. Stoppage I mostly, time. I mostly tried to do that, like, uh, for my TV shows, pick things that, um, you know, are done with at mm-hmm. this point in time. But it broke my rule for number five because it's <laughs> Orphan Black. <laughs> I love that show so much. And normally I would pick something like, I don't know, Battlestar or 30 Rock or something to throw in there. But... This show is so perfect to me so far in that if they canceled it right now, they'd better not, though, because I'll kill you if you guys cancel it. And anyone who's <laughs> available to cancel things, just don't even do it. Don't, don't even do it. Anyways, but <laughs> if they canceled it right now, it would still be in, you know, my top five. They would have to really fuck it up for me to, you know, take this off my favorite shows list. Mm. It's such great sci-fi. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right. I hear Justin Bieber is doing a whole arc next year on that show. <laughs> Don't even start with me. It's a really good show. I've seen both seasons. Yeah. It's very good. They're renaming I, it Orphan Bieber. I, <laughs> nice. All of you. That's two. It's two. Um, no, it's interesting because the and like I haven't seen. I've only seen a couple episodes of Orphan Black, and it's not about the quality of the show. The reason I don't put shows on that are current is because I get wrapped up in them in the now. You know, yeah. so I, I I try to I'm trying to eliminate that completely from my head. I, I will say this: the, I, I love Orphan Black. I've grown to really love it. The this is not a really spoiler. You've been watching it for like two weeks. That is not true <laughs> at all. Um, a month. God, Steph. Always, <laughs> always, butting heads. <laughs> always. Um, the dancing. There's a dancing sequence in. I think it's the finale. That was pretty much just like a special effects jerk off sequence. Other than that, <laughs> it's fantastic. I love special how, effects jerk off. Yeah, that bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. I'm just pointing it out. It was very. It, it went on for a little while. Um. Oh, all right. So, okay, well, number I five. Think great. Orphan Black for Stephanie. Um. My number five is Seinfeld. Ooh. Um. I went back and forth on a lot of different things, and it's one of those things where I haven't watched Seinfeld in a very, very long time, but. It was one of the things that helped define what I thought was funny, you know. So it, it definitely shapes all of that stuff. And um, when I go back and watch old episodes, um, th- they still make me laugh, and I still think that they're, you know, yeah. fantastic. And we quoted one earlier in the show, yeah. obviously. So, oh. uh, <laughs> so yeah, Seinfeld. It's it's just it's still brilliant, you know. And, and I think that um, it's one of the things that stands the test of time. I wholly agree. Yeah. It's interesting. That show is on two or three different networks yeah. in syndication at its height. Mm-hmm. I have ended up seeing, flipping through the dials, mm-hmm. the same three or four episodes <laughs> over and over and over again. I'm not surprised. And, yeah, yeah. and they're very funny. Yeah. Uh, Marble Rye. Oh, yes. Marble Rye is a great episode. <laughs> Give me that, you old bag. <laughs> you old right, bag. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, bringing like cookies, bringing cans to Michigan. Yeah, oh yeah, that's a great one too. The with, ten cents. With, yeah. Yes. Because it's much more. Uh, the tennis pro. Oh yeah. Seen that yes. a couple of Milos. times. Milos. Yeah. Yeah. 
saw the Bizarro episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the finale for some random reason. That's so funny. That's really, really funny. Um, so, Bob, you're number four. Number four. Monty Python's Flying Circus. Ooh. Which I first caught as a Sunday night PBS deal in... Actually, I, let me take that back. As a series, the first time I saw it. In the summer of 1970, the repla- summer replacement shows they used to have, they didn't have they didn't have seasons in the same way we do now. They ran things differently. 13 weeks in the summer, you either did reruns or a replacement. So the replacement for Dean Martin's variety show was the Marty Feldman World of Comedy. Marty Feldman, picture him sitting at a television control booth, picking up clips from shows all over the world, and they showed the Monty Python parrot sketch. What is, this is insane. I have no idea what this is. I had a vague idea of the goon show, Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers. It was a radio show back in the old days. And then this showed up on PBS on Sunday nights, and we were all in our early 20s, our softball team, whatever, and every Sunday night, after the game, sit around, get a pizza, get some beer, sit around and watch Python. And I'm one of those people that could sadly, as much as I can quote Star Trek, could quote you Python <laughs> routines <laughs> verbatim. It is blindingly original, insanely silly, and awfully, awfully clever. The, the, the guys here went to Oxford and Cambridge. And when you have a, a, a comedy routine that is... It's a football match. I'm going to be proper about this. <laughs> between world philosophers and gynecologists. <laughs> and another one with pirates. Now, please. You just... A game show that summarized Proust. <laughs> right, yeah. Just crazy stuff beyond the silliness of silly walks and the Spanish Inquisition and the rest of it. Still available in all sorts. I've bought this, I can't tell you how many times. I taped them off the air on my old VCR when I first had the shot. So Monty Python's Flying Circus, number four for me. Nice. Steve, you're number four. My number four is Freaks and Geeks. Nice. Yes. Um, who was the guy that did this? Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow. Oh, really? And mm-hmm. There was a dude, though. He also did School of Rock. Was it Paul... Something. Oh, Paul Feig. Paul, Richard, Paul Feig. Richard Linger did yeah. School of Rock, but you're thinking of Paul Feig. Okay. Yes. Um, Freaks and Geeks is, of course, it's starring all of the Linda Cardellini and Seth Rogen and James Franco and that whole Jason crew. Segal. Jason oh. Segel. Yeah, Jason Segel. Yeah, like yeah. All, you know, they're all they're all there. And um, I found this show after it was canceled. I didn't watch it when it was on, but when the box set came out, and I just that was me. Like the freak table and all of them, that was who I was in school. Um, it also this show. I'm trying to keep my descriptions brief because I know we got a lot to get through. Mm. Uh, my favorite television character of all time came from Freaks and Geeks, and that's Bill Haverchuk. Absolutely, every everything about him I adore, and and just he embodies so much of what I was like when I was much, much younger. And I just, I identify with a lot of different personalities on that show and has a very special place in my heart. It's crazy the amount of super duper famous people oh, yeah. who came out of that show. Well, they were onto something. If you watch yeah. it again, you watch it now, it is super, super clever. Oh yeah. It is super clever. It would be, it would probably be a hit now. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another show, the Undeclared show is good as well. The one that they yeah, follow it, up. It was good. It wasn't, it didn't have that same... No. 
like flavor like freaks and geeks felt really authentic and yeah. like they really poured their hearts into it and they they like all these references to the 80s and and you know like late 70s and stuff like that and like the music that was in there and just the performances like undeclared was like frat fun mm-hmm. where this was a little bit more distinguished oh yeah i mean yeah and it's also it's deeper it definitely yeah. is deeper it deals with deeper things yeah um absolutely um great great pick it's, it's, it's such a great show thank you such a great show um stephanie you're number four six feet under nice nice i i can count the number of things that have genuinely brought me to tears like movies and tv shows oh yeah and even sort of books too on one hand and i mean i've teared up in things but not full-on cried, and the finale for Six Feet Under, without spoiling things away, had me bawling like a baby. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) why are they doing this to me? I didn't do anything to deserve this. It's just horrible. (laughs) And it's so genuinely beautiful. And every time I hear the song that plays during the final moments of that episode, Mm. like, still brings me to tears. And they play Sia... Uh, a song by Sia called Breathe Me. And ugh, that show is just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love. I have to revisit it sometime soon because it's been far too long since I've watched it. And it's a show that deserves to yeah. be revisited frequently. Yeah, it's in, it's in my top 10. I made a top 10 list. I'm only reading the top five, mm-hmm. but it's in my top 10. I and yes. When that final episode, I was getting to it. I had the box sets, and I'm getting to it. And everybody's like, "You gonna, you gonna break? You gonna cry?" I'm like, "Nah, man, I'm the Rock." And I watched it. Waterfalls, <laughs> just oh, awesome. Um, all right, awesome. Uh, my number four is Friday Night Lights. Oh, I still have to see that. Um, it's an amazing show. Um, based off a fantastic book and a and a very good movie, but. What the show does is it first of all it transcends it both transcends and perfectly captures the the spirit of the actual game of football. I mean it deals with it in a very interesting way as almost you know like the um it's like the the catharsis for the people you know and it it, it definitely uses it as a as a dra- dramatic tool because there's a lot of like they've got three seconds left and they got the ball <laughs> and they, you know they do they do yeah. that stuff and they they use it a, a, quite a bit but it's some of the best shot football I've ever seen in anything. Um, and the performances are just so amazing. Kyle Chandler, um, who's the, who's Coach Taylor, is unbelievable. Like I, he's somebody I watch that show. I'm like, I want you to coach my life. Like I just <laughs> wow. want you to be in my life to tell me how to live my life the right way. Um, it's inc- it's it has an incredible moral center, um, it, but it's also incredibly honest about things that teenagers go through and things adults go through. Um, except for like a five episode spot in the second season where it got a little bit weird. Um, <laughs> it's uh, nearly perfect. And I remember watching the fourth season of the show. I think I cried for the f- first five episodes. I cried. Wow. Oh, wow. And I was, I, 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 I think I texted my friend. I was like, this show is emotionally perfect. That's what I wrote. And that's what it is. You know, it's just an amazing show. It's a show that needs to be watched. Even if you, even if you hate football, it's a show that you needs to be watched. I have it. I've been meaning to watch it. I just never got around to it. It's fantastic. Nope. It was canceled, None. came nope. back, and then yes. went to cable. Or what is, how did this? It was so, so weird. So it got canceled, and then Directv like picked it up and decided to like co-sponsor it. So they still showed it on NBC, but it was like it was it was bought by Directv. So the budget got much lower, and they did a big change in the, in the show, uh-huh. uh, even to kind of reflect the, the the change in what happened to them as far as 
their sponsorship and who was paying for them. They did kind of a, almost a thematic shift on the show. Um, but yeah, it's, it was one of the first shows that really, that really happened with, um, mm. before the Netflix days and stuff. So Steph, you were going to say something before I, it's on it. Netflix, right? Yeah. The whole thing's on oh. Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. You should definitely check it out. If you have Netflix, check it out. Mm-hmm. All right. So Bob, you're number three. Number three. Bob, bring the props out. I bring the props out. Uh, <gasps> Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. <laughs> now, just, it's an anthology show, so I don't know what these included, but I went for it anyway. Of course, you it's gotta, a show. You it was aired on network television. Right. But when you go down the list of just great episodes, and we all could, mm. chapter and verse, you all have the favorite, whether it's To Serve Man and it's a cookbook, or Time Enough at Last, or Talking Tina, or... Go to some little diner and there's a little guy on the corner the telling dummy. telling your fortune, the <laughs> dummy with Cliff Robertson, oh. just on and on and on. Just there were funny ones and sad ones and really creepy horror ones. The Invaders, which is a silent episode with Agnes Moore, the little yeah. bass people. Just a wonderful one of a show. Rod Serling wrote two thirds of them to three quarters of them, but beyond that, Earl Hamner created the Waltons, wrote for the Twilight Zone, George Clayton Johnson, Richard Matheson, tons and tons of great people. There's an episode that to me it's is it fifth season? I think it's fifth season. It's called The Long Morrow with a fellow named Robert Lansing and Mariette Hartley. And he's he's an astronaut. He's, he's, he's alone, has no family, and they're going to ship him out into deep space and put him into the deep freeze to let him go. Figures, why not? I have no one, and I'll be asleep for 200 years on Earth time, whatever, 80 years, and, and we'll go. Just before he leaves, he falls in love with Mariette Hartley, who's working on the base, and they're they're going to be parted, mm. and I am not spoiling this, but I defy anyone to watch this and not ball at the end of it. It's <laughs> called the Long Morrow. Awesome. So Rod Serling's Twilight Zone is my number three. Fantastic. And if you, by the way, if anyone's buying these, the ones to get this is the complete definitive collection that came as individually. These seasons were about seventy dollars a piece. The box set of DVDs, if you shop well enough, is about one hundred and forty. They came out on Blu-ray recently with some extras that weren't on here, but there are tons of isolated tracks, commentary, all mm. sorts of jazz on these. Coincidentally enough, since this is coming out, we're recording now and it's coming mm. out tomorrow, tomorrow's Amazon Gold Box deal is the entire collection of The Twilight Zone, Ooh, discounted wow. at a major price on Blu-ray. Oh, awesome. okay. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Boom. Awesome. All right. Steve, you're number three. The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, Simpsons. Got to be on the list. Has to be. I I mean, I know like everybody says like three, four, and five were the golden years. And they're right. They were the best seasons. But oh my God, those seasons were so priceless. It's so many jokes, so quotable, so many great episodes between, uh, God... Streetcar named Marge, uh, Marge versus the Monorail, and Three Men in a Comic Book, and just all of these different characters. And and I fell in love with The Simpsons. The Simpsons was a show that, even though it was animated, my entire family got in it and got behind it. We would always watch it together. Uh, I was never told not to watch The Simpsons because Bart was like a bad influence or whatever <laughs> the hell was going on back then. Um, we totally embraced the show. And I have so many amazing, amazing memories throughout the years for over 20 plus years of all different episodes, all different characters uh, of that show. And although the quality of it has diminished in recent years, it doesn't 
tarnish the overall quality of of those several seasons for me. Anytime that I pop those in, I will just I'll I'll laugh. I'll I'll be touched by some of the stuff between Homer and the kids and just him being a goofball but always trying to do the right thing and mm-hmm. just the holiday episodes every every year with the Treehouse of Horror. There's so many good things attached to that show and I love it. So yeah. it's number three. You well, had such always, a sorry, Boston horror. What's up? I don't know. You just had a really like Boston y kind of like tone to horror. <laughs> I fucking like, hope not. Horror. I hate Boston accents. Like the no offense, guys. Chowder. 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 Uh, That's one of the <laughs> Simpsons jokes. Yeah, I know. Don't say chowder. I was say chowder. I'm tying it in. Um, one of the things I always say about comedies is that most of them always end worse than they began, some of them often end horribly. I if I always try to pick like I find like the if there's if a four year block in it is there's always like a four year block that's usually fantastic yeah and I usually try to compare those four year blocks between all like the comedies that I love and that's how I kind of mm. parse them out yeah. in my head. Um, but anyway, oh, Stephanie, you're number three. My number three. I've had a lot of trouble with this list. I thought I had it nailed down, and now there's a lot of second guessing. But my number three is Better Off Ted. It really? Like, what? Yeah, you're crazy. It's like, no, you're crazy. No, I didn't Listen. mean like, I just mean you're crazy. That's I've like, never seen it, but yeah, I, that's, that's not I mean. something that I expected to yeah. hear on your list. Tell me I, about it. It's just like, okay, when I was doing my list, a lot of shows, there's a lot of shows that kind of automatically come to mind, right? And what I wound up doing was taking a lot of those shows that were naturally in my top five off the list and replacing them with shows that had rewatchability for me. Uh, and like things that I've rewatched over and over again. And Better Off Ted is a show that I can watch continually. And it's just as funny, if not funnier, every single time I watch it. Um, the show is just so underrated and great. It's on Netflix. And, you know, they they run the, the group. It's called Viridian Dynamics is the company that they all work for. And they create products and they have things like weaponized pumpkins and they're trying to make like of course. just all these yeah. ridiculous things like meat that isn't actually doesn't actually come from like cows or anything. It's just like self-grown meat. And they just make all these really weird inventions and they have these crazy scientists that are hilarious. And I don't know. It's hard to kind of describe if you haven't seen it before, but Portia de Rossi plays um, a clueless higher up. She she is the boss of Ted, who you know the show is named after. Obviously, and Ted runs his floor, and he's in charge of the scientists and a cute girl named Linda, who you know steals creamer from the you know the coffee break room because it's her way of getting back at the man. <laughs> she has like a drawer full of creamer and she's like i know it's weird i know it's weird but i do it and it makes me feel better about my life um it's just ridiculous and it's hilarious like one of the episodes they getting, decide, stephanie stephanie what? we're getting a little granular fine it's <laughs> funny you guys just questioned my choice and i need to justify well, it no well i wanted to know because i've never seen it so i was wondering it's amazing all right there you go it's like on um, par with the rest of development carry on <laughs> well, speaking of which, my number three <laughs> is Arrested Development. Whoa. Um, it uh, to me, those first three seasons are the funniest, most clever television I have ever seen, 
and um, I, I've I've never experienced writing in TV that's that deep that that has that much uh, hooks into itself characters that are infinitely should be infinitely unlikable but somehow you all love them uncontrollably and I mean some of the best comedic performances uh, Jeffrey Tambor Jessica Walter um, Will Arnett is is absolutely amazing uh, on that show. Um, Jason Bateman, Michael Sarah, the, the, the you know all the way down. Portia de Rossi is, is great on it as well. Um, uh, David Dave, Cross, David Cross, um, also just unbelievable. So it, it's one of the the greatest things I've ever seen. It honestly would have been higher on my list, except that the fourth season is not that great. So it gets knocked down a little bit for mm. me. But it's those first three seasons are just so good that I, I, I it, it holds a special place in my heart. Talk about shows. I've rewatched it. 15 times probably wow yeah okay so i love it to death now is that the netflix season was the fourth one yes okay yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. it was it was um all right bob you're number mm, two. two two he's bringing it out of the bag sure the avengers the british television show which came here in 66 not the comic book avengers but steed and mrs peel it actually, I, I'm a fan of all the seasons, including the ones, the one that wasn't seen here where Honor Blackman was Patrick Nee's original female partner, then Diana Rigg, Linda Thorson, and then Joanna Lumley, eventually. Quirky, weird, bizarre takes place in its own little world, the sort of Avengers land where nothing is exactly what you think, diabolical masterminds and crazy people. A male and female lead, slightly older gentleman, in this case, Diana Rigg, who now she's Game of Thrones and yeah, an is. older lady and does some <laughs> bad things. She was, she's not actually, she's American television's first liberated woman because Honor Blackman was on the other side. What they had, they had a chemistry that was unique and Brian Clements, who was the writer producer, he was always, well, when are they going to get together? I went, no, they already have. That's the, that's the key to the whole thing. They already have and know it doesn't work and so they just have fun with each other. So there's no jumping the shark. It never turns into that. Diana Rigg only did two seasons and then moved on. She was making $250 a week and quit to go do Shakespeare. Hmm. So anyway, It's the Avengers is my number two. All right. Steve, your number two. My number two has already been talked about. Seinfeld Oh, okay. is my second favorite <laughs> TV show of all time. I have seen, like you say that you've watched Arrested Development upward of like 15 times. I've lost count of how many times I've seen each individual Seinfeld episode. Um, I will... Go over to my DVD rack. I won't even look. I'll just grab a box set. I'll grab a random disc, throw it in, and just hit play all, and that'll be, it's done. Um, I love the idea. I've been trying to explain this to my girlfriend because she's seen a little bit of Seinfeld and doesn't care for it. (laughs) Um, And the whole thing is, I love the idea of these four absolutely just pitiful, awful, terrible people that just they do these things and they they are the way they are towards these people and they're just so awful but they're so damn funny and they're so relatable at the same time i i can't even how many times i've been out with friends been out with karen also and just seinfeld moments or being very seinfeldian Mm. towards people and just catching yourself acting like george or acting like lane or acting like jerry and uh, I just being from New York and having that as the backdrop for that show and knowing a lot of the places that they visit and talk about and stuff like that. Um, 
it's just a show that I've seen for years and years and years has always stuck with me and never, never loses its hilarity for mm-hmm. me. I laugh every damn time. I could watch the same episode over and over again. I still laugh. Yeah. So fantastic. I love it. Awesome. Stephanie, you're number two. Is what you just talked about. It's Arrested Development. <laughs> it's honestly, it's another show that I've probably watched. I don't know, like you, like 15 times. I remember taking it um, to college with me and somebody or my friends back home showed me it. And I was like, this is the best thing. <laughs> and I took it to college and all these people were like, oh, no, I haven't seen this. And I lived on the floor with all these comedy students. And um, they were just like arrested development. And I was like, oh, it's on. <laughs> and I wa- rewatched it so many times in college alone. And it was funny. It wasn't boring once. It's so funny. It's the the third show is a bit silly where they break the fourth wall and get all pandering to please don't cancel us mm-hmm. <laughs> is a bit silly. But I mean, other than that, the first two seasons are some of the best TV ever. Awesome. Awesome. Um, my number two is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Nice. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that noise is. No, no, it's a good noise. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was hard to discern. Um, Sorry. So there are things, like we mentioned, things that you love when you're younger and then things that you love when you're older and things that shape you and then things that you go back and watch and you go, okay, I shaped me, but it's not as good as I remember it being. Yeah, Buffy is not one of those things. It's one of those things where I, when I started watching it, um, when it came on TV, I remember being like, what is this show that's based off that weird movie? You know, that was basically what I thought. And then... Um, I remember just one day I was, I, I didn't even watch the first season. I don't think on TV and I started watching the second season and there was a, an episode, an episode where angel spoilers turns, um, um, after him and Buffy uh, have sex. And that was the episode that kind of locked me in to, uh-huh. to, to the show. And then from then, I mean, has some of the, the best stuff, you know, best stuff on TV, in my opinion. Some of those episodes are just, you know, blindingly genius. Joss Whedon is amazing, amazing writer. Um, you know, uh, there's an episode in season five, I believe it's season five, called The Body. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, which deals with the death of a character, which is one of the most blisteringly real things you will ever see on on TV, a depiction of death. TV, movies, whatever. The, the rawness of it is unbelievable. And the fact that the show was able to go there when it's a show about, you know, killing vampires with stakes and doing all this crazy stuff uh, w- was amazing. I mean, it's still, it's still, when I think of the way I want to write humor, it's the first thing I think of. Um, you know, to me, to be clever was to be like the characters on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, just amazing, amazing stuff. Um, so Buffy the Vampire Slayer is my number two. Yeah, great ensemble cast. Yeah. Across the board, wonderful hero, yeah. wonderful lead, great role model. Mm-hmm. And that cleverness you talk about never seemed like it was trying hard to be clever. Mm-hmm. It came off as just people talking to each other, yeah. which is, that's even harder to do. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, has one of my favorite characters of all time, which is Spike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favorite characters of all time. So and that's Anya. my number two. Anya? Anya? Yeah. Anya's good. Yeah, she hates bunnies. She <laughs> She's very scared of them. All right, Bob, you're number one TV oh, show of all time. One. I think I can guess. You would, and you would be correct. Yeah. It is. It is definitely Star Trek, which I got to see the first episode of in September of 1966. <laughs> My dad let me stay up late. What you have here is there was science fiction on television before anthology series like Twilight Zone, One Step Beyond, Outer Limits. This is the first serious 
non-kid oriented Flash Gordon-y sort of dramatic science fiction television show. Gene Roddenberry always said that he pitched it to the network as Wagon Train to the Stars. This is a Western, just takes place in outer space. He had political statements uh, about our human condition, what was going on, great things like Balance of Terror that are sort of submarine warfare pictures, three characters that become modern mythology, and in essence, they're the id, ego, and superego, in that you get to hear Captain Kirk's thought process through the emotional Dr. McCoy and the logical Mr. Spock, and that's something that grew like Topsy as they did it, but just absolutely brilliant. And when it was good, as the book I described before, Sit on the Edge of Forever, won two different science fiction awards, one for the actual script, they won a Writers Guild Award for Ellison's script, and the Nebula Award for the actual episode. Mm. So it was it's real science fiction, gussied up third season, Gets a little weird because there's a new producer and they were canceled and bad time slot and whatever, but there's still gems in there too. Day of the Dove, Wrecking from Methuselah. I'll shut up now. Star Trek, <laughs> number, number one. Number one for me. Steve, your number one TV show of all time. My favorite and number one television show of all time is The Twilight Zone. Nice. Oh, yes. On. We did talk about it before with Bob <laughs> um, and I kept quiet. I did not, re- did not show my hand. <laughs> I love, 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 love that. I love the Twilight Zone ever since I can remember. Uh, all those New Year's Eve nights with the marathons yeah. and everything, just episode after episode. Uh, but it wasn't until the fifth grade I had a teacher named Mr. Gizmondi, who was a Twilight Zone fanatic, just bonkers. We had a, a I have a picture of me holding it. Like every every student got to take a picture with something school oriented. And I still have the picture of me holding the framed and autographed picture of Rod Serling. Um, Instead of like educational movies or just movies in general, we would get Twilight Zone episodes on like those off days where like they turn off the lights in the classroom (laughs) and they bring, you know, Miss Reynolds class comes in and, you know, both classrooms are sitting in and the teachers just kind of having their coffee off to the side. We would watch Twilight Zone episodes. Um, Mr. Gizmani was also the first teacher to encourage me to start writing. Mm. And because of the Twilight Zone influence, I started to lean towards like the sci-fi and the horror and the fantastic and all of that stuff. And that really was a turning point in the fifth grade where I started to get away from what, you know, the norm or like the popular kids were all into. I used to play sports too. I couldn't handle it after a while, but I found an identity and a place where I could be comfortable and it was it was within the Twilight Zone stories and I have all of them at home I have all the DVDs seen them all I don't remember them all but there's just something so wholesome and satisfying when sitting down to watch those they feel so good mm. whenever I sit down to watch them I love love that show Awesome awesome yeah. Quick little bit yeah, sure, not everyone knows the original Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. that ending is Rod Serling's. Yeah. He wrote that script. Mm-hmm. And The Dummy is my favorite. Dummy oh, okay, and uh, Time Enough at Last. Hmm. But The Dummy was the first thing to genuinely... I grew up on horror movies, The Shining, whatever. Hmm. That episode of The Dummy scarred me for life. Hmm. <laughs> that voice of that thing, I can hear it in my head right now. Yeah, yeah. I have chills. <laughs> All right. Stephanie, you're number one. My number one is... Pushing Daisies. Ooh. Brian Fuller. 
uh, short-lived show, two seasons, Lee Pace, Anna Frail, Kristen Chenoweth, and um, what's his name? Oh, um, Chee McBride? Chee McBride. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. I love this show so much. You knew it was going to get canceled. It was just too stylized for uh, mm-hmm. the general public, but oh, such a great show. Lee Pace uh, plays a character, Ned He's a pie maker that can bring things back from the dead, uh, but yep. only for like a minute. Yeah. Otherwise, something else dies in its place. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a beautiful show. And if for no other reason, you can love it for the whole aesthetic of it. It's gorgeous. Well, it's um, it's Soddenberg. It's the guy that did... Uh, Sonnenfeld. Men- Sonnenfeld, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Uh, the guy that did uh, Men in Black. Yeah. And kind of Adam's with, Family. Yeah, it came up with like, the stylistic look of the oh, show. Yeah. yeah. It's just... It's perfect, and I love everything about it. Mm. Awesome, nice choice, Stephanie. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Um, I I don't think it's like the worst kept secret of all of these lists, but my number one is it's almost as worst kept as Bob's Star Trek. <laughs> my number one show of all time is Lost. Obviously, um, <laughs> I've talked about it like six billion times. Uh, there's not too much to talk about. It. Only it goes along when I talk about Lock and Key, which is that the kind of story that Lost tells is my favorite kind of story, which is sweeping, big, character-focused, epic storytelling with elements of sci-fi and horror and the supernatural um, that strives to be, yes, a, a, a web of plot, but more than that, strives to give you interesting, rich characters. And that's what that show did for me. Um, yep. Some of the most memorable characters and the best acting I've ever seen on TV. Um, obviously a very divisive show, but in the end, um, talk about a finale that made me cry. There's three moments in that lost finale that made me weep like a little baby. So <laughs> That's powerful stuff, then. You know, I'm yeah. currently invested in the show, so that's why. But um, some of the best episodes, like The Constant, yeah. which... It, um, is one of the best episodes of Viva I've ever seen. Um, and the three episodes that end season three of the show, which are greatest hits and then through the looking glass part one and two, um, the other two, two of my favorite episodes of Mindir. I'll say this for all the television that I've watched over the years, that finale of the last season mm. was the most excited I had ever been for an episode of television ever. Mm. I went over to my friend Mish's house and I mean, through the roof like i couldn't <laughs> sleep the night before because i was so excited to find out how it all ended <laughs> yeah so lost my favorite tv show of all time can i run down a quick list of shows that came out when you guys were actually alive <laughs> as opposed to the list of stuff from the 60s all right quickly bob quickly no, no can't say anything about them though nope beauty okay. and the beast okay absolutely fabulous all right birds of prey okay moonlighting all right Battlestar galactica all right Awesome. <laughs> See, some of you were alive for them. It's true. I was alive, I think, for all of those. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, all right, let's, let's move on to our top five albums ah. of all time. Ooh. Here we go. We're going to start. We're going to change up the order. Oh. We're going to go to Steve first. Oh. Number five. Ah, all right. Oh, this, is, this was the hardest list to do. My number five album of all time is The Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. Um, it is a live performance that they did several years ago. Um, the reason that it's my favorite out, al- my f- fifth favorite album is alt of all time is because in the year 2008, I attended, uh, all tomorrow's parties up in upstate New York, Monticello. And it was the, we were driving in my friend John's car. He had this huge, like transformer looking truck thing with TVs <laughs> in it and shit. And I'd never heard that, seen that performance, never heard the whole thing ever at all. 
and they put it on in the car and we watched it all the way up. That weekend began what was a musical revolution, evolution. It completely changed the way that I think about music. And it all started with that album and that performance. And ever since then, it has been the defining moment of almost being like reborn into my love of and appreciation for music. So I put it on my list as number five. Awesome. Awesome. Stephanie, you're number five. My number five is um, Angus and Julia Stone, Down the Way. Um, I'm going to guess probably a lot of you guys haven't heard of this band. Um, Brother-sister duo from Australia. Uh, Just kind of really great songwriting, and uh, both have really, really interesting voices. They play a wide variety of instruments. I've seen them live. They're so great. Uh, Apparently, they're a really, really big deal uh, in Australia, and uh, I think they kind of are in, like, Toronto, but that could also just be, like, hipsters and stuff. But um, they're fantastic. I love them so much. She has got such a beautiful voice. And they both have solo albums as well and numerous albums together as Angus and Julia Stone. But, again, this album's called Down the Way. It's fantastic. Awesome. Awesome. Um, number five was definitely my hardest hardest one to pick for oh me. yeah definitely uh, it was between two ones i just couldn't decide i finally just like you have to pick one so i just picked one um and that would be a rush of blood to the head by coldplay hmm. um coldplay's second album um and for me unequivocally their best album um their most complete uh I, I think it's them at their best it was it was you know when they were still kind of in their zone before, and now they've changed the band which every band does as they go along but this was the zone in which i felt like they improved upon what their first album was and were comfortable enough before they were, they got the restless thing. So they needed to change up what they were doing. Um, it was right in that perfect spot for them. Um, you know, uh, in my place, um, the scientist clocks, um, run down the list of of that album from beginning to end. It's just, it's an amazing album, emotional and and truthful. And, um, my favorite of theirs and one of my favorite bands. So it's my number five, a rush of blood to the head. I've never heard Coldplay. Really? Nope. Other, I mean, you've heard some of the, I've like, heard, the, like, I've the heard, hits, right? Yeah, I've yeah. heard like, well, no, I haven't even heard those. Like, okay. I, I've heard the beginning piano to clocks. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. And that's it. Like the first 17 <laughs> seconds, and then it just went away. A Rush of Blood the Head is a fantastic album. I mean, I'm sure I know them without having heard. Yeah, you, you know would, what they yeah, are. Yeah. I mean, Yellow, and um, I mean, you have to hear them, but you would know them if you heard them. Absolutely, they're they were somehow sing one, Bobby. Steve sing avoided one. them. I must sing a Coldplay song. Do it. Somehow Steve do avoided it. them, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a, it's a that's a magic trick, um, Bob. You're number five, and I'm not singing it, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> My number five album is from the year 2000. Just think it's, it's not all in, in, in the, the past. Year 2000. 2000. And it is called Jim No Petey, and it's by Pamela Kirsten. It is jazz funk electronica indie rock played on a theremin. <laughs> Sorry about Because that. she is the world's leading thereminist. There was such a word, and she only began playing in 1999 when she made this. I first became aware of her. I was at a symposium at the Museum of Natural History, an art-science mashup. And she not only plays this, this is the first electronic musical instrument. You play the magnetic fields, and it makes this whiny sound that's in horror movies. And on the dome of the Hayden Planetarium, they were showing all this fractal stuff while she was playing, and her... Thurman is MIDI, so she's playing a line that gets looped and mm. looped and looped, and it was this crazy electronica. 
And it's just an amazing instrument, and she's just an amazing player. And I, she's got a couple albums out. One just came out that I can't buy because I don't know how to download anything. <laughs> but it's Pamela Kirsten Gymnopedi. Awesome. my number five. Awesome. All right. Steve, your number four. My number four favorite album of all time is Bjork's Post. Um, Bjork is my absolute favorite female musical artist. I think she is beautiful. I think she is lovely. I think she is infinitely creative and unique, has an awesome sense of style. I don't care if all you remember is that swan dress. (laughs) Fuck you. She's incredible. Um, Every time that I've seen her live, she has just left me slack-jawed and in awe. Um, I saw her uh, her latest uh, at the Roseland before it closed for the Biophilia tour. She did the entire album from beginning to end with this centerpiece all these harps uh harpsists and just like dancers and this whole big planetary thing with like uh holograms all over the walls and shit but anyway um bjork's post is just from beginning to end it's got it punches right in with uh army of me and goes into the modern things and hyper ballad and it's oh so quiet that crazy music video that she made there was even like a figure skating performance uh to it's oh so quiet that was just Probably the I don't like watching figure skating all that much. I find it to be boring. I think it's very graceful, and, and I give all credit in the world to those people who do it. But that one performance of that song was just gorgeous. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love all of her music, but if somebody put a gun to my head and said, you can only pick one album, it would have to be hers, and she absolutely needs to have a place on this list because... I I would not feel the way that I feel about music without her contribution to it. So did had, you did you make it so you only picked one album from each of each artist? Oh yeah, otherwise my my entire list would be two albums. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I just wanted to say I did the same thing. I just wanted to say Stephanie, you're gonna say. I had some guy like when me and my friend Molly went out to do karaoke. I can't remember if I told this story when I was in Chicago. Like this guy came up and he's like, and you know the the weird. He's like, I have a weird request. And that's already like a red flag. You're like, what? No, <laughs> whatever it is, no. <laughs> especially at a bar um but he was it, it was karaoke and he was like i'd really like if somebody did a bjork song and i was like <laughs> no big hit of karaoke but i mean yeah <laughs> that's what i mean like she just has like that voice where you can't really do at karaoke yeah no she does and like, she doesn't yeah <laughs> but no i i totally get it if somebody asked you to do a bjork song it, you would be trepidatious <laughs> yeah. about doing no, yeah but then you know in retrospect you're like oh well that's not so weird okay <laughs> she did a, she did a song for a, a gangster film called Play Dead that mm-hmm. um I mean I haven't heard you sing stuff but if you were to sing any Bjork song it would be that one. Well, thanks for the heads there, up. There I will go. put it on my karaoke list. Next time you yep. get the weird guy at karaoke. <laughs> yeah. You're going to one step ahead. Gotcha. Of him. Yeah, exactly. And it's an obscure Bjork song. He'll be really impressed. <laughs> oh, um, I and that's what I I want to impress him. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, you're number 4. Uh my number 4 uh is metric uh the album old world underground where are you now um it's their second album i believe but metric's probably the band i've seen uh live more than any other uh mostly because i've wound up working a lot of their shows (laughs) for various (laughs) like radio stations and things i've done in the past but um i love it i first listened to it when i worked at a music store um in high school 
and we'd play it from start to finish. And it was just one of those albums that you could listen to from start to finish and just enjoy all of it. It has highs, it has lows. And I, I was listening to it today when I was prepping for the show and was just like, yeah, I'm okay with this choice. <laughs> it's really great. If you haven't heard of Metric, um, I highly, highly recommend starting with that album. I saw them. I saw when I saw Muse. They were they're touring with Muse. Yeah, that would actually be a pretty good they were lineup. Good. And they uh, and they are the band that is the the singers when in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. 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 Oh. yeah. yeah, yeah. She does the uh, song Black Black Sheep. Yeah, Ivy. The you know the the other band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of Canadian bands do the music for um, Scott Pilgrim as yeah. it takes place in Toronto and Metrics. Yeah. Uh, Canadian band. <laughs> I don't know a Scottish Canadian band. <laughs> just. Bobby's <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> right. just disappointed that it's not Nickelback so far. Yeah, yeah. Look at this photograph. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so you can sing that, but not Coldplay? Yeah, no, because I, I hate that song, so I can sing it. I'm not going to ruin a song I love. Um, <laughs> so, my number four is The Stranger by Billy Joel. Awesome. Um,. I, I think about Billy Joel is when I started listening to Billy Joel, he already had like 11 albums out. So yeah. the way I knew Billy Joel was that huge greatest hits album. That was like three parts that had like yep. every single yeah. thing on it. Yep. Amazing. I grew to love him. Like I would listen to that thing over and over again. And then when I actually went out, I was like, I want to listen to an album. Um, you know, I, I, I went through a bunch of them, but the stranger is basically almost just a section of that greatest hits album put into a, um, obviously the titular track, the stranger scenes from an Italian restaurant moving out. Vienna, only the good die young. Um, uh, Pablo Red. Pablo White. <laughs> uh, Vienna is my favorite Billy Joel song, so that is why it's it, 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 you know that's definitely there. It's an amazing album uh, from an artist in his prime. You know, I I often find it funny about Billy Joel because we are in the Billy Joel crucible on Long Island, where he mm-hmm. is Absolutely. the most popular, one of the most popular artists of all time in this area. And I always wonder like his popularity that how it reaches past you know this area, um, but. Obviously, growing up on Long Island, I heard him all of the time. Oh, yeah. Um, but never grew tired. And just still today, I listened to, like, Stephanie, I was prepping for today. I listened to the album today. And it's still just as amazing as it was when it, the first time I ever listened to it. My sister's husband, back when he was a uh, mechanic, he actually built three motorcycles for Billy Joel. Oh, really? Did he crash them all? <laughs> he did not. But a funny thing about Billy Joel, for his, all the money that he has, he does not tip. Yeah, well, I, I I have actually heard that about him because he uh, I went to school in Southampton and uh, he was at all those restaurants and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, I had a funny story about Billy Joel real quick. I had a professor in high school, in high school in college, who when he was a kid, he was like walking home, um, and Billy Joel picked him up like he was hitchhiking, and Billy Joel picked him up, and when he got in Billy Joel's car, Billy Joel was listening to Billy Joel. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what you do. Uh, yeah, but A Stranger is my favorite Billy Joel album, and he's one of my favorite artists of all time. Hey, it was an article in the paper today. He's, for those not in New York, he's playing once a month at Madison Square Garden. Oh, really? He's now sold, he's in residency at Madison Square Garden, <laughs> and he has sold out, I think, nine straight shows mm-hmm. once a month doing deep catalog and all sorts mm-hmm. of yeah. things. Wow. Saw him once in a bar called Mother's here in it was in Melville. Mm-hmm. He was sitting with Jerry Cooney, who I actually went to junior <laughs> high school with, and they were both blasted. <laughs> Hopefully neither one was driving home. And he was actually in a band with a friend of mine in the 60s. Oh, they really? Were in ba- Billy Joel's band. He was in the Hassles, but also in the Vagrants hmm. here on the island back That's when he played Farfisa organ and crap cool. like that. That's awesome. So, yeah. My number four. Your number four, Bob. Mine. He brought it with him, of course. Of course I brought it. They're all here. <laughs> They're all here. 
It's also a piano player, but it's Thelonious Monk from 1957. It's Monk's Music. Thelonious Monk was one of the originators of modern jazz, sort of bebop, where it became about musicians and not the swing jazz that preceded it. Monk became very famous as much for the, the real quirky melodies he wrote, but the spaces in between. You know Monk playing piano and what it is because all of a sudden there'll be a pause. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be there, but there is. It's as if you're riding a horse, and the horse keeps going straight ahead, and you think he's going left. Mm -hmm. But it's just so interesting. And this album features two generations of tenor saxophonists in Coleman Hawkins, who in the 30s played Body and Soul, was one of the original jazz guys, and John Coltrane, who was just about to be the next guy. Just an amazing album filled with Monk monk classics like ruby my dear and well you needn't that means nothing to all you folks but thelonious monk monk's music from riverside records 1957 number four awesome steve your number three my number three favorite album of all time (laughs) is a perfect circles mer de noms uh which means the sea of names uh, Merde Noms is an album that I was fortunate enough, my friend Chris used to work for CMJ Music Magazine, and when you worked for CMJ, you got music early, and sometimes you got stuff really early, like two and a half months early. <laughs> so uh, I managed to get my hands on that album super early, traveled all the way into uh, when he was going to uh, one of the universities in the city, uh, I can't remember, one of the art schools, um, SVA. Is that it? That's the thing. All right, yeah, School of Visual Arts. There you go. Uh, and I, I traveled in there. He burned me a copy of it. I was going home. I got about halfway to the train station, and I, I absolutely had to catch this train. It was something I had to do back home that my parents were going to kill me if I was late. Realized that the disc wouldn't play in my disc man, because we were still using those back then. So I walked all the way back to his apartment to burn a different version, because there was no way in hell that I was leaving that place without it. Uh, I've seen A Perfect Circle about 11 or 12 times live. And the first time that we saw them, we and a bunch of my friends, we were the very first people up against the barricades at Nassau Coliseum. They were opening up for Nine Inch Nails. We knew every word, every beat, every single note of that album, and it was all that they had. I was so close to the band that I could literally reach out halfway and grab like Maynard's ankle if I wanted to. They knew that we knew the album, and instead of like being weird about it they completely embraced the fact that we did and the entire performance we were locked eyes with at least four members of the band rocking the fuck out with them to the entire show it was one of the hands down one of the best shows i'd ever been to phenomenal so and also my favorite perfect circle song which is sleeping beauty is on that album all right awesome yep awesome stephanie you're number three arcade fire the suburbs yeah it's a good one I don't really have any justification for it. I love it. <laughs> That's just no occasion. No, it's you know, just I'm, awesome. Yeah, it's an amazing album. Really Mike amazing Bro, album. Carry on. <laughs> um, my number three is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. Wow, out of yeah. all the Beatles stuff, Lonely Hearts Club. Yeah, I mean, it changes a lot for me. You know, I, I go between that, Abbey Road, and the White Album. That's kind of how I how I. My favorite Beatles album is a go. total cop-out. Mine's the, the Red Album, The Greatest Hits. Oh, yeah, that's not a real album. <laughs> sure that's it. it. You go home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but Sgt. Pepper's, to me, I mean, it's... It's, I guess, it's often cited as the best a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, for me, from the way it opens to the way it closes, it, it's just astounding. I mean, that opening you know, riff is just unbelievable and unmistakable and makes me want to, you know, dance every time I hear it. <laughs> um, and um, 
you know, it just, it's an amazing album. And, and, and the story it tells from back to front is absolutely amazing. And, uh, um, you know, it, it, the leap that began with Rubber Soul is fully realized, I think, in Sgt. Pepper's. And it's, I think it's both of them at their, their height of, of their powers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not, not to mention George Martin, too, as a production, oh, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a piece of recording history mm. on everything else, all those layers and levels and yeah. a concept album. Yeah. They've been, they've been done before, but not to that extreme. Yeah. And, and I, still I, be listenable. Oh, not, yeah. yeah. A Day in the Life, which is oh. one of my favorite, favorite songs of all time. Um, and I, I think the perfect encapsulation of the differences that would eventually drive uh, <laughs> the two of them apart, because that's a song that is wholly split in half between the two of them. The, the John parts are unequivocally John Lennon parts, and the Paul McCartney parts are unequivocally Paul McCartney parts. The the poppy, you know, mel- melodic rhythms of, of Paul compared to mm-hmm. like you know the more psychedelic and more lyric focused stuff of, of John is just is so apparent there. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it's it's my my probably my favorite Beatles album, and certainly when I was making this list, it was one that I, I decided was going to be the awesome. One that's at here. All right, Bob. My number three. Your number three. Huh. <laughs> A real record. It's got a vinyl. Like a real vinyl what in album. The world from Road. Is that wait? Is the band? It's J.R. Walker. Junior Walker, Junior Walker and the All Stars from 1966. Roadrunner. That's the name of the album. Yeah. Okay, I was going to yeah. say the Roadrunner label has not been around. No, that it's long. actually it's, it's <laughs> Motown though. It's their sole subsidiary. Nice. It's Junior on the back, who I nearly worked for many many years ago. This is his third album, second of new material. His second album was an instrumental uh, for Motown. First one of those. Has the title track, I'm a Roadrunner, which is a big top 20 hit. Tons of R&B hits on here, Pucker Up Buttercup, which a lot of people know. It's just a tremendous saxophone player, great gut bucket R&B sort of thing, which is very different from Motown. And the song on here that everyone should hear, beyond the, there's a closing uh, riff thing called Mutiny, where you can hear the, the Motown house band go, go completely nuts, particularly James Jamerson. Junior Walker does the, a cover, and it was a top 20 hit, of Marvin Gaye's How Sweet It Is. This is the version you want to hear. You want to hear Junior Walker's Forget James Taylor, Forget Marvin Gaye, as crazy as that sounds. <laughs> the version of that song you want to hear is on this album, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, Roadrunner, 1966. Very All right. cool. Awesome, Bob. Steve, you're number two. Wow, we're back to me already, huh? Yeah. All right, my second favorite album of all time is Failure's Fantastic Planet. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I'll keep this really short because I already talked about them. I went to Music Hall of Williamsburg and saw the second best performance of my whole life. And that was waiting after 17 years to see Failure live. And my good God, it was beautiful. Uh, Fantastic Planet is tied in deeply to uh, my relationship with my father and old, old visits I used to take with him. It was a very magical album that every time I lost it would reappear in the same spot as if it was waiting for me every single time. My dad and I would crank that album and drive around Pennsylvania in the hills and everything, canoeing, all kinds of stuff. So many amazing memories. And it is a, an album that is a story uh, more, more than anything. Um, Just beginning to end tells this, incredible, incredible tale of a man who has basically escaped a, a mental hospital and you're, you're hearing these stories about his, his lament for wanting to be back there, that he feels safe there. He fell in love with people there and now he's out in this world where everybody treats him, you know, like, like a patient outside of the people that really cared for him. Anyway, um, I don't want to spend too much time on it. 
the song Daylight, which is the last song on the album, makes me feel like I can do anything. It's going to sound really strange, but there are points in that song where I feel like jumping out of a very, very <laughs> tall window, just mm. crashing right through the glass and falling forever listening to that song with headphones on. I know it sounds weird. Will you survive at the bottom? Yeah, that's the question. I know, you just keep going. Okay. Oh, you just keep okay. going. Right. That's you just good, keep then. falling okay. and, oh. So good because there have records that make me want to jump out the window, but it's not to keep falling. <laughs> they, um, they smash into this note, and he just he screams daylight, and the way it carries, I just I feel like I'm being lifted out of my body when it, when he sings it. It's mm. ama- amazing, wow. awesome, awesome. Um, what was the name of the album, by the way? Fantastic Planet. Okay, I remember that movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, There's stuff from that. Uh, oh, Stephanie, you're number two. Florence and the Machine Lungs. Ooh. I really that one. I love this album so much. And this is going to be probably, I have a lot of obscure bands on here, I know, but this is probably the most hipster statement I'm going to make. But I was following her like from the moment her album came out, like in the UK. And (laughs) I loved it. Like I've listened to it, you know, when it first came out, I listened to it probably every day for like a year straight. Um, And I worked at a store called HMV. And I would try to pedal it for so long. I'd be like, hey, do you like this? You would really like this. And, you know, like you get to see regular people in every now and again. And people would be like, I'd put it on for them. And some people would love it. And then some people would be like, uh, her voice is too like this, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> and then as soon as her fucking song was in that Eat, Pray, Love trailer, all those same people were like, oh, my God, I love this song so much. It's so fresh. <laughs> I just wanted to strangle all of them. Um, you do sound like a hipster. Yeah, and anyone who would say it's more than I ever have on the show. <laughs> on the show, you say. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I love this album so much, and I'm really happy that she's getting the recognition she deserves. She's mm-hmm. fantastic. She's a great performer, um, and just she's amazing live. If you ever get a chance to see mm-hmm. her do a live show, uh, I got to see her twice front row and it was like the best thing ever i have I like her, video on my youtube account and everything I i'm like her at, uh, such a nerd radio city music hall i saw her a couple years ago awesome phenomenal yeah she's fantastic yeah um all right my number two um is lost and gone forever by guster um I've never heard mm, them before uh they're probably my favorite band um if mm. not my second favorite band um and it's funny because I feel like there are those bands that you fall in love with when you're younger. Um, they're the, they're the first of the bands that you love because your parents love them. Then yeah. they're they're the bands that you love because your parents don't love them. You know, <laughs> and, and then I feel like for me, especially, there was a time where I just wanted to find music because I wanted to find it. You know, and um, our, my friend Brad was in going school in Boston, and this band Guster was a very big band in Boston, and he started listening to them, and he was kind of like, just listen to this song. Um, because my biggest hump is is just getting through listening to enough songs where I get into the band, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and, and he gave me this song called Either Way by Guster, which is on this album, and it's so, it's incredibly emotional. It's one of those songs that makes you want to cry listening to it. Um, just this, it, it starts small and gets grand, but, I, I, you know, I was enraptured by it, and I started listening to the album, and... Um, it, they're a band that at this time they had just started using a drum kit. They had been a 
bongos only drum kit wow. band. Wow. And the drummer played just with his hands. Like, there's all the drummers just with his hands. And um, they just introducing a little more kit in this, but there's still a lot of bongos going on in the, in the, in for their main per- per- percussion. Um, that's a percussion. They're amazing musicians. They play multiple instruments and they do amazing harmonies. And I'm a sucker for harmonies in, in music, beautiful melodies and just songs that are unbelievable. The song, the, the album is great from beginning to end. And I, um, I had the pleasure of a few years ago it was the end of 10th anniversary of the album. And they did a tour where they, they, they did a show where the first set they played like normal set. And then they took a break, and then after the break, they just played through the entire album, nice. start to finish, uh, and that w- and the- and that was the show. And it was an amazing thing to be able to see the album start to finish and see them play these songs that they never play live. That's cool. You know, they never play a lot of these songs live, and um, yeah, absolutely love them. They're- I love their whole catalog, but Lost and Gone Forever is my favorite of their. Albums. When I went to go see Failure, I mean, if they missed maybe two, three songs off of Fantastic Planet, mm. they pretty much did the whole thing. That's great. That's always great when you hear that yeah. album that you love so much. Yeah, um, thrilling out, Bob. Number two. Number two, speaking of parents and fathers, mm-hmm. is something my father got me started with. It took me some years to catch back up because you need to have some life experience to listen to Frank Sinatra. Mm. Ah, so that's from nice. 1958, Frank Sinatra sings for Only the Lonely. So as you can imagine, this is an album of saloon songs and heartbreak and loneliness. I mean, just the titles, Only the Lonely, Angel Eyes, Willow Weep for Me, Blues in the Night. Most famously for One for My Baby, the famous close out the bar, mm. quarter to three, no one in the place. <laughs> That's that one. It's voice Gilmore, Nelson Riddle arrangements. And if you're feeling sad about something, I read in a psychology magazine once that the worst thing you can probably do is listen to happy stuff because you start to resent the people singing who are so happy. <laughs> what the hell are you so happy about? So this is one of my go-to things. If I'm in a little bit of a blue mood, I can throw this on and get really, really stinking sad. But afterwards, <laughs> it's, okay, someone else in, in the world feels the way I do. Yeah, and right, you, feel, yes. you feel better for it. Absolutely. So it's Frank Sinatra sings for Only the Lonely. Awesome. All right. And we're to number ones. Steve. Number one. This will come as no dun, surprise dun, dun. to people that have been listening. Um Okay, I'm going to try to keep this brief because I could talk about it forever. My favorite album of all time will never, ever, ever change is Anima by the band Tool. Uh, That band means more to me musically than anything else I've ever experienced, ever heard, has ever come and gone, ever. Uh, So much of my life and so much of my identity and so much of what I believe is reflected in their music and they're one of those bands that as i grow older and they come out with music eventually (laughs) they their albums tend to reflect what i've gone through from the last time that we heard from them anima is an album i'll keep this super short uh literally saved my life i know that a lot of people hear that kind of thing um for those of you that don't know i have uh crohn's disease and one of the problems that i had was that i needed surgery Um, I've also had two open heart surgeries in the past. I was in the hospital. I had gone five days without sleep and was scheduled for surgery the following morning. If I did not sleep, if I didn't get proper rest, they told me that there's a high probability that you will die because we cannot give you the proper drugs to sedate you in order to give you the surgery to have it be a success. 
called my mom at three o'clock in the morning and I said, I need that album. Can you bring it to me? She brought me up a boom box, brought me up that album within five songs. After five days, I was fast asleep. And the song that I fell asleep to was 46 and two. And if any of you listening know anything about that song, it's all about shedding your skin and being like reborn and basically moving on to the next evolution and the next step in your, your human process. And after that surgery and moving on to the rest of my life, that surgery marked when I started to get better. Wow. Um, also met the first love of my life the first time I saw Tool. 19 shows later, we're still super close. Mm. So, um, yeah, I could talk for hours about that band. Love, 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 love them with all of my heart. My favorite album of all time will never change. All right. Stephanie, you're number one album of all time. Queens of the Stone Age songs for the deaf. Wow, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I this was like a last minute thing too. I I had to do some swapping around and because I I didn't have this album on my list at all, and then I was like, what is wrong with me? I love I love rated R. I don't think I've ever heard songs for the deaf. What? <laughs> <laughs> the first six tracks of rated R are just. I love um, this uh, the lost art of keeping a secret. Yeah, that one's a great tune. But I don't know why, but like when I'm on airplanes, I go back and forth between listening to Queens of the Stone Age songs for the death from start to finish, or the Decemberists, the Hazards of Love. They're really different. She's sneaking in albums. She is. Come on. No, it's not. But I didn't even put the Decemberists on here. You just shut your mouth. (laughs) Anyways, that I love this album. It was just and an aside. And who snuck in TV shows and stuff? So shut up, someone. What? What? I snuck in TV shows, but oh, I did never ask. Oh, then. I was going to say if it was okay. Steve or Bobby or someone, but not you, Bobby. You're allowed. Or someone. <laughs> you just want to yell to yell. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, songs for the deaf. Awesome. Um, my number one album of all time is Pinkerton by Weezer. I was going to say the Blue Album. <laughs> no, I mean, the, I love the Blue Album. Um, and, I love Pinkerton. Um, the Blue Album is amazing. Um, and I love it for its its kind of California rock perfection. But the thing about Pinkerton that I love the most is that it is the one Weezer album that is completely without irony. You know, he they write songs in a very ironic way. They're always being very sarcastic. They're they have an arched eyebrow for everything they do. And Pinkerton is just a raw, a, a raw put down of what of everything that they were feeling at the time. You know, mm-hmm. Rivers is never usually very much like I feel exactly like this, and this is the problem. It's always some sort of like big metaphor or or, or something like that or some joke. Um, but this is just. I, I don't know what the fuck to do. It's basically what that album is about. We had this huge album that we worked on for however many years, and now they just want another album. What are we supposed to do? Um, and, you know, they, they started, they went from this, because the Blue Album is incredibly tight, right? It's it, Everything is mm-hmm. perfect and, and arranged, and, and, and then Pinkerton is sloppy and, and big and, and has weird tempo changes. And um, But to me, it's just, it's the height of, of them because... It was them unbridled from all that other stuff, which I also I love that that way they are. But this was it's just a shockingly different thing. How's the production quality on it? Pinkerton's good. Um, they actually just released a remastered version of it though, which is mm-hmm. fantastic with a lot of the the B side stuff. Yeah. Um, which some of those B sides are um, unbelievable. Okay. Um, it's the deluxe edition or whatever. It's great. So the the blue album they one they did as well because the blue album 
production value from the first time around is like not fantastic. Yeah. Um, but when they remastered, it, it sounds like amazing. Because when I tell people that uh, that Undertow is my least favorite Tool album, I get crucified by people that love that band and i tell them has nothing and has nothing to do i just i don't identify with the with the songs and right. the quality of it. it's muddy right it sounds like shit <laughs> great song but it sounds like shit sorry guys um but if you're if you're listening to pinkerton i mean uh the the, the, the opening track get you is like fantastic mm-hmm. but um good life which was kind of this like like frankenstein of a song which is part you know, part like Weezer pop song and part like weird, like angry song, which is yeah. amazing. Pink Triangle is, is unbelievable. <laughs> and they, they're amazing at closing off albums. Butterfly, which is on that closes off the album, mm. um, is a slow song. They always close the albums with like these slow songs. It's this beautiful, simple little thing. Um, uh, unbelievable. My favorite album of all time. Pink Where's um, My Name is Jonas? My Name is Jonas is the opening track of the Blue Album. Oh, it is. Yeah. Why did I think that was a single or a movie soundtrack no. deal? Uh, well, um, Suzanne is in um, Mallrats. Right. Th- that, and that was a B-side on the Blue Album. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What uh, year was Pinkerton? Pinkerton is, oh God, I don't know, 90... Shit, I'm not Middle? Gonna, it's, Eight? It's, it's, no, it's earlier than that. It's like it's like mid-90s, 94. Because okay. hmm. the guy I used to work with is a big fan. Yeah. I remember hearing two albums, we would bring stuff in, that sounded not like the same band. Yeah, that's what that, that was those okay. two albums. Because everything uh, else sounds like... The blue album. It sounds like a variation. Yeah, of the no. Blue if, album. I, if I had to listen to a to Weezer album, it would be Pinkerton. Yeah. Um, he also played Jane's Addiction <laughs> every day. That and live so album I, of Jane's Addiction is fantastic. No. Ninety six was Pinkerton. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So that was definitely still yeah. in the store. You yeah. Ever hear Jane's Addiction do uh, Sympathy for the Devil? Yes. I've heard Jane's Addiction do nearly <laughs> everything. So good. Long before anyone else. It's one of those things. Now, Bob's a hipster. I was Ocean, a hipster. Ocean I was a hipster. Yeah. Jane says, been caught stealing. And Coming come on. from the mountain. Um, yeah, exactly. All right, Bobby, number one. Ah, ah, ah. Back to vinyl. Back to vinyl. <laughs> it is the second newest album on my list. Wow. You know, it's from 1970. <laughs> uh, it's the Four Tops Still Waters Run Deep, which is actually the first Motown concept yeah, album. Love Motown. It comes a year before Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And it's interesting in that Obi Benson, the Four Tops bass singer, wrote What's Going On. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. There you go. Wow. Same. And this is actually my second or third copy of this. It's actually a little cut out from the corner. Uh, title track is actually there are two tracks is one at the beginning with the still water peace still water love that bookend the album it's all in the game which everybody knows they do a couple of covers of songs or everybody's talking the nilson song from midnight cowboy uh, the Sup- supremes reflections really amazing uh, but there's a song called bring me together where it's just tons and tons of levi stubs just heart achingly beautiful just an amazing record and it was my good fortune i am going to digress slightly because i can this is my number one, after all. And I was lucky enough to get to know these fellas. And there was a box set that came out that is actually really has some very interesting things in it beyond my name is in it. And I actually got sent a copy in that. Where is my little... You know, I put stuff in it so I'd, I'd not hey, lose things. And you found it. You these go. are act- There's a discography here with pictures of albums. Mm-hmm. These are my albums. <laughs> these are pictures oh, you, you gave them to them to use for the these are my pictures in this album yeah i went up to motown with a giant bag full of record albums because my covers were in better shape than their archives that's awesome so these are actually my albums in <laughs> this 
Now, the, the sad thing is, though, when the box came with this box set in it, because they sent me a copy gratis, because, well, that was, you know, I, I helped them out. Uh, I noticed something that was going to be a problem. And I look inside, there's a, there's a thank you at the bottom. I, I can't even see it here. Yeah, I'll do it. They misspelled my name. <laughs> <laughs> Motown actually misspelled my last name in the thanks. It'll say R-Y-E-R. <laughs> Rear. Yeah. But it, it's still pretty cool to be to be included. Mm. And uh, again, I just an absolute privilege to know these gentlemen. Uh, again, it was the same four guys from 1954 until 1997. And the only thing that changed is somebody died. Hmm. I like that there's a guy in there named Rick Stoney Stone. <laughs> he has a collection too, I guess. So anyway, <laughs> uh, it's the Four Tops Stillwater's Run Deep. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. All right. So movies. You ready? Yeah. yeah, I'm ready. All right. So Stephanie. Ooh. Your number five movie of all time. Wrist Cutters, A Love Story. You were bringing the, you were bringing the obscure it's I've been, so I've been wanting to see this, so I want to hear about this. Uh-oh. Um, so, oh, things are getting weird. I am got all echoey. But uh, Patrick Fugit uh, and Shannon Sossaman, they mm-hmm. play, it's based on a book as well, but uh, they play characters uh, that are dead. Um, one commits suicide and one accidentally dies. And they wind up in this purgatory. And in purgatory... Um, Everything's a little grayer. It's not black and white, but everything has a little less color. And the people there, are they go there because they've killed themselves. So this is their punishment that they're, you know, it's like Earth, but again, like, just grayer. gloomy. And they can't <laughs> smile. Mm. They Aww. physically can't smile. So um, these two characters find each other, and uh, he's trying to help her find a way he's trying to find they're trying to find the higher ups so that they can get her whole thing um taken care of because she doesn't actually belong there so what is it that you love about it it's just it's a great story the characters are so unique and um i just love their journey um it's it's kind of a depressing title obviously and a depressing (laughs) premise but Ultimately, like, this story kind of takes them through, um, you know, them coming to terms with what it really means for them to have killed themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of them decide maybe it wasn't such a good thing. Some don't care. But it's a really interesting story and an interesting look at, you know, one's life from the perspective after death. Awesome. I made sure I ordered that for the video store I worked mm. in, and I never brought it home. I always kept looking at it. And said, I, this mm-hmm. looks like it's right up my alley. Mm-hmm. I have to say, we did get some complaints. Really? Oh, yeah, from parents of mm. children who had killed themselves or whatever. How dare you have this movie on the... Oh. Okay, I understand. Yeah, that's a rough thing to have to yeah. Yeah. talk about. It's, mm. I mean, but, I mean, it doesn't glorify mm-hmm. death. It's, you know... A story that just kind of tells what happens if that mm. happens. Right. Well, exactly. You know, I saw so many positive reviews of that film mm. that it was something. You know, we we did lots of indies and smaller films, and that was just you know, we had to have it. And yeah. People loved it. Who, who felt as you do, Steph. So awesome. good for you. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. So Bob, you're number five. Oh, we're skipping. I'm skipping. Okay. I'm going around. I'm we're going around. We're going around. Keep your body on their toes. 
Number five, I may have spoken about it somewhere along the line, and Stephanie is going to squee. Uh, it's 1953's Roman Holiday. <laughs> See, there you go. I love Audrey Hepburn. Yes, it's her American film debut after seven films in Europe, one of which was made twice, once in English and once in French, and she's in both because she could speak five <laughs> languages. It is a story that's now been remade with Hilary Duff and Amanda Bynes and everyone else with all sorts of different titles. It's about a princess who is just bored with living the life she has to do, the prescribed, do this, this event, this dinner, this whatever, and just runs away and encounters sort of cynical American expatriate newsman Gregory Peck, and there's romance in the air. It's Rome, after all, and adventures and fun stuff, and we did this on our show mm. back in the old days, and Bobby, you said just marvelous things about it at the time, and we've talked about that oh, yeah. here. That <laughs> just an amazing film for people who want to know what the whole Audrey Hepburn thing is about. There are a lot of other movies to pick, believe me. This is where to start. Roman Holiday. Awesome. Directed by William Wyler. Steve, you're number five. My number five favorite movie of all time is Disney's The Sword in the Stone. Ooh, saw that in the movies in 62. Oh, you lucky dog. Um... Sword in the Stone has two of my favorite animated characters of all time, that being Archimedes the Owl and Merlin the Magician. I just absolutely, oh God, everything about that movie just screams nostalgia and magic and everything. That, to me, I mean, I've I've seen, maybe if I've missed a handful of Disney films, mm-hmm. I'd be surprised. But out of all the ones that I've seen, I always go back to the bat, the wizard's duel between Merlin and Mad Madam Mim. That those last 10, 15 mm-hmm. minutes, um, all the things that Arthur gets changed into to teach him about life and about love and about loss and about the importance of education, the importance of of ruling under an honest thumb, and the idea of the unlikely child being the king and the savior of all. Um, is just wonderful. It's got that Disney magic in it with the the uh, like brooms and the dishes doing their stuff, the ward and just all the all the characters Kay and the and the guy looking after Arthur, uh, and it's inf- a lot of all the movies on my list tonight when we're reading them they're infinitely quotable and the Sword in the Stone is infinitely quotable. Archimedes is I said two favorite characters. Archimedes is my favorite animated character of all time. Wow. All right. Um, awesome. my number five yeah. is my favorite movie from my favorite director, and that is Inglorious Bastards. Nice. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. Um, it passed Pulp Fiction for me. Um, upon my multiple multiple watchings uh, of the movie, mm. um, fantastic performances, amazing dialogue, uh, bas- mad cap ass crazy ending, um, <laughs> that I just love. Um, and uh. Michael Fassbender is unbelievably good. That whole bar scene is unbelievable. Um, so Glorious Bastards is my number five. I think that's my favorite of his films. Mm. Just taking a time-worn genre, it's, it's the epic war picture, the Dirty Dozen, Guns of Navarone, yeah. turning it on his head. Yeah. And for all the big stuff, the scene in the dairy farmhouse yeah. at the start. The start. Christoph Bates. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's oh. crazy. It's insane. Number four, Stephanie. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Nice. Mm, nice one. Um, this is probably like, I mean, Jim Carrey has a f- couple serious movies. 
I mean, I think a lot of people would probably pick like the Truman Show over like this for serious performances no, from him. No but way. no, hmm? really? no, not for no. me. No, no, no. I mean, okay. not for me. I well, I, I've heard people like be like, no, no, his best is like the Truman Show. But no, I, I love this movie. I love Kate Winslet in this movie, and I love the whole idea of what would we do if we could forget somebody utterly and completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, his whole thing about wanting to forget Clementine, kind of get back at her and just, it's such a beautiful story that takes you through all the broken parts of a relationship and, you know, the realization that those parts make them, make the good parts good. Yeah. Pain is important mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in that kind of, in kind of sense. Um, great, great pick, Stephanie. Really, really great pick. Bob. Number four. From 1933, I have the Laserdisc here, though I have the DVD too. It's The Marx Brothers and Duck Soup. Nice. Which was their anti-war statement eight years before Chaplin's Great Dictator. This is all four Marx Brothers. You get Zeppo, who's mostly here for doing the straight stuff, but is very funny in his own right. This movie goes into the uselessness of war by just lampooning how stupid it can all get we we end up with songs all god's children got guns for instance with all of them singing in a sort of hoot nanny style and running around groucho is actually running the country of fredonia mm-hmm. up in the college here upstate they actually they they use their flag now and everything else it's become a thing but he, he makes his entrance and is singing that the last man that had you know, ruined this place he didn't know what to do with it if you think this country's bad off now just wait till i get through with it mm-hmm. So, Duck Soup from 1933. That bit that you showed me when I was at your place last was spectacular. Which one was that now? Oh, you got to rattle off the titles to me real quick. Or not. Monkey Business? Monkey Business. It was the one on the ship where they're they're, they're trying to get off their uh, stowaways. And they try to get off by all pretending to be Marie Chevalier. It was pretty good. Which includes Harpo, who could talk in real life but doesn't talk in the movies, with a uh, hand-cranked Victrola strapped to his back playing Chevalier records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. My up? Yeah, number four. My number four favorite movie of all time is the John Hughes classic, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Oh. Uh, every time, every single damn time that we get to the end of that movie, and they if you've never seen it, I'm not going to spoil it for you, there's a reveal towards the end of the movie that I doesn't matter how many times I've seen this damn thing, it always gets to me. Hmm. Always. Um, I think it's one of the funniest movies that I've ever seen. I absolutely, John Candy is is an actor very close to my heart. I enjoy so many of his movies. Love the chemistry between John Candy and Steve Martin in that movie. Um, infinitely funny. There's a Kevin Bacon at the beginning. And... Uh, I absolutely just there are there are scenes that aren't necessarily supposed to stick out but do for me and the one of my absolute favorite scenes is when uh John Candy's playing the air piano on the car before he gets his jacket yeah. stuck on the uh the little clasped thing and they yeah. end up going off road doing his Ray Charles imitation. Oh right? god. I love that movie to pieces. You could put it on, I'll sit down, I'll watch it, I'll watch it over again if you just let the DVD play and run again. <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, my number four is Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Nice. Um, it's just because it's basically a perfect movie. 
yes to me everything about it it's emotional it's it's entertaining it's frightening um you know it's it's the coming out party for who will become the probably the greatest commercial director of Mm -hmm. maybe all time um and it's just it's unbelievable to me i mean it's it's a it's a it's a great film on top of everything else and uh, you know i i I don't i don't have the cultural relevance to it because i wasn't you know obviously of the age when it came out i wasn't even alive when it came out but um it made me not want to go in a bathtub for a year (laughs) so (laughs) oh it did have that effect i saw that here at the it's now a performing arts center it's the patchogue theater old Mm -hmm. theater with a balcony and the scene where why don't you come down and chum some of this Mm. yep the entire balcony moved backwards in their seats two Mm. feet Mm. you could feel the entire theater move and catch their breath that is scary and then you laugh it's that nervous laughter that follows just absolutely brilliant people there are people who want to blame all the problems of tentpole movies Mm. and franchises and summer Mm. movies I don't care what you want to say about anything that's constant. That's just a brilliant, brilliant film yeah. by a Fun great director. Fact about Jaws is that uh, we're gonna need a you're gonna need a bigger boat line. Was yeah. totally Imp- improvised. Improv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so that's the number four. Here's the thing, guys. It's midnight where we're recording. We've been recording for over three hours, so we have a choice. We can either run through quickly our top three or save our top three for another show. I'm gonna be away probably for the next little while. No, I know for a couple next couple weeks. I'm good. I'm good to run through them. Okay. Yeah. Um. Okay. So we'll run through them then. All right. So Stephanie, you're number three. Three Stardust. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um. Bob, right? Casablanca. All right, Steve. The Princess Bride. All right, mine is The Fellowship of the Ring. Ah. Um. Number two, Stephanie. The Little Mermaid. <laughs> just don't say it with some love, why don't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> that's how you said it. You said it with like a oh, in your voice. Citizen King. How, how typical, Bob. <laughs> Steve, number two. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. My number two is Shaun of the Dead. Mm. Um, number one, Stephanie. I think ours is the same. Okay. Almost Famous. That is my number one. <laughs> I love Almost Famous so, so much, Bob. The 1933 Ernest Showed Zach, Miriam Cooper, King Kong. I knew that. <laughs> uh, Steve, you're number one. No mystery. The Big Lebowski. All right. So sorry to rush through those guys. Um, it, I, I'm going to actually do a write-up on some of these ones that we didn't get to talk about so much. Yeah. Um, put that on the site. And if you, obviously, if you guys want to talk to us more in depth about these, email us, podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com or at talkingcomics on Twitter. Um, or facebook.com slash talking comics. I didn't get the other five pages of my list. <laughs> um, I do want to run down very quickly. We got a, we got some from our listeners. I don't want to short ah, them yeah. for not doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from uh, Benji, and he says um, the top five albums are number five, M83 Oblivion. Nice. Um, number four, uh, Dan Lassac versus Scroobius Pip. A- Ange- Angels or Angles? Angles. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, We've got uh, number three, Ignite, Our Darkest Days. Um, number two, Bouncing Souls, Comet. And number one, The Prodigy, Invaders Must Die. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, his films are number five, Oblivion. Number four, The Fifth Element. Number three, Lucky Number Slevin. Number two, Ooh. In Bruges. And number one, Jaws. Better stay In away from Bruges. my girlfriend, man. So In Bru- good. In Bruges yes. is amazing. It's three of her favorite movies. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look out. Um <laughs> 
So let's see. I'll cut you, man. This is from Dylan. His favorite albums. He didn't. He didn't put numbers on them. But Blood on the Tracks, Bob Dylan, uh, The Benz, Radiohead, mm. um, Idler Wheel, Fiona Apple, nice. uh, Damaged, Lamb Chop, and Born in the USA, Springsteen. Lamb Chop, very nice. Yeah. Um, so for movies, he's got Serenity, Friday Night Lights, The Rock, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Love that movie. Um, it's a left fielder. I love it. From TV shows, he's got Firefly, Friday Night Lights, sensing a theme here, he says, The Wire, The Shield, and Boardwalk Empire. Um, so thank you very much, Dylan. Um, let's see. From Hugh Perry. Uh-oh. <laughs> his Springsteen, albums, all of them. Yeah. His albums, uh-huh. number five, Quadrophenia by The Who. Number four, London Calling by The Clash. Number three, Ten by Pearl Jam. Ooh. Number two, Revolver, The Beatles. And number mm. one, Darkness on the Edge of Town, Bruce Springsteen. Um, TV shows, he's got number five, Breaking Bad. Number four, Black Adder. Number three, Red Dwarf. Number two, Game of Thrones. And number one, The Wire. Um, movies, he's got number five, Ghostbusters. Number nice. four, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Number three, Blade Runner. Number two, The Avengers. And number one, The Empire Strikes Back. Whoa. Mm. Um, Christopher Haley, for his movies, very interesting. He included posters with his. Nice. Princess Mononoke is his number five. Very nice. Memento, number four. Yes. Stranger Than Fiction, number three. Very cool. Number two, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Hmm. And number one, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, his TV shows were Firefly, Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek The Next Generation, Gargoyles, and Batman the Animated Series. Gargoyles. Um, albums, we've got... Um, the White Stripes, Elephant, um, The Beatles, Abbey Road, My Chemical Romance, Welcome to the Black Parade, um, Wilco being there, and Peace. U2, Joshua Tree. Um, this is from Joe Tenby, and his movies are the 86 Transformers movie. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh. Uh, the animated Alien, Flash Gordon, Total Recall, and Uncle Buck. Uncle, Uncle Buck. Buck. Yes, <laughs> giant pancakes <laughs> for the win. Look at that giant pancake. Uh, TV shows, Battlestar Galactica, Futurama, Six Feet Under, Family Guy, and Young Ones. Um, albums, Faith No More, Angel Dust, Carcass, Heartwork, Rush, Moving Pictures, Kate Bush, The Kick Inside, and Exodus, Fabulous Disaster. Hmm. Um, from Nick Guerra, we've got top five movies, Blade Runner, Superfly, The Road, North by Northwest, and Shogun Assassin. Um, top five TV shows, X-Files, Star Trek, the original series, um, Young Justice, Trailer Park Boys, and Game of Thrones. Um, and his top five snacks are yes. Cheez-Its, Flamin' Hot Cheetos, Saltines, Smokehouse Blue Diamond Almonds. Damn, you Ooh, those, those, are good. those salty treats, man. Yeah, yeah. Those almonds are good. This is from Brett. His top five movies are Akira, yeah. 40-Year-Old Virgin, Kill Bill, Alien, and Dune. Hmm. Um, honorable men. No, I'm not giving you honorable mentions. Dylan. We didn't get honorable mentions. So you don't get them. <laughs> Sorry, Brett. Um, TV shows. <laughs> um, we've got X Files, Sherlock, Planet Earth, uh, Metalocalypse, and South Park. Um, and top five albums. We wrote. This is impossible. I really hate this. Is what he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> um, White Zombie, Astro Creep, 2000. Yeah. Queens of the Stone Age, Lullabies to Paralyze, um, Gorillas, Demon Days, Foo Fighters, The Color and the Shape, Sick. and Pink Floyd, Animals. Mm-hmm. Fine uh, choices. And this is from Huey. 
Yeah. I'm guessing a different I don't person. believe it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I get email from oh, okay. okay. Uh, movies, Taxi Driver, Argo, Road to Perdition, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, yes! and wow. Blade Runner. Very um, nice. And shows, we've got Parks and Rec, Orange is the New Black, Breaking Bad, Batman the Animated Series, and The Simpsons. Wow, Orange is the Ooh. New Black for all time. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you guys so much for writing in your list. That is awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, if you guys are getting touch us again, it's at Talking Comics on Twitter podcast at tongcomicbooks.com and facebook.com slash talking comics i'm at bobby shortle on twitter steve i am at dead underscore anchorus stephanie at hello cookie bob bob ryer at talkingcomicbooks.com um we're not gonna do releases this week because it's we're out of time very late and we're out of time but go to comiclist.com because they have a <laughs> awesome list that's where we get it every week and i'm gonna guess it's more than meets the eye see if did you I already right. look no <laughs> That I will check. Saga number 20 comes out. It's true. And new uh, Superman writer as well. Jeff John, Six-Hour Superman. Yeah, what's that crazy Joker cover? I didn't see it. Jacques did uh, did. his Adventures of Superman today. Oh, Adventures of Superman. Yeah. I I might have to pick it up. I haven't been reading that, but it looks tasty. Nice. Joker's coming to meet Superman out of nowhere, even (laughs) though he's gone. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Um, it's comics. Adventure Superman also takes place out of continuity, so that's probably why. Hey, hey. Um, Stephanie, you are gone next week, correct? I believe so. I'm going to try, but I think uh, probably not. So yeah, I think Steve is also gone. I uh, yeah. It's Canada Day. Yeah. Be yeah. Canada. So yeah. Um, picnics and fireworks. I don't think I, I'm, we might get some fill-ins. We might not. Bob and I just might have a nice little chat. The two of us just have a nice little comics chat. Fireside <laughs> chat. Fireside chat. Bob and I. That sounds like fun. We'll, we did that once before. We did. We'll address the nation. Yeah. <laughs> we'll um, do some World Cup. and Yeah, exactly. We'll just talk. We'll have a nice, nice little talk. Um, just get some masterpiece theater music mixed exactly, in. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you just do a Q&A. Like, you should interview each other. That's true. We should. And we'll get plenty of questions from listeners as well. Um, so, also, um, if you're interested in the top five albums, I'm going to get everybody's albums, the names, everything, and I'm going to make a, spot, a big Spotify playlist and then put a link for everybody mm-hmm. can check them out um, so you guys can do that. So look for that as well. Can I say one thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you guys missed it because we were having a little bit of trouble oh, yeah, with yeah, the yeah. YouTube, uh, it wasn't posting live for some bizarre reason, but it's there now and it's in the post. If you go to talkingcomicbooks.com, uh, myself and Bob hosted a new Talking Comics book club. I know you guys have been asking for one. This past Saturday night, we did Joe Kelly's I Kill Giants. Um, it might have been our best episode yet, so I definitely suggest that you guys go and check that out. It is a featured thing on the site right now. Yes, of course. Check out the book club. Um, check out Talking Games. Check out Talking Movies. Check out The Misfits, our whole family of awesome, awesome entertainment that we've got for you guys. Um, and that's going to do it for this week's show. For Steve. Let's go to the movies. Bob. Good night. And Stephanie. Bye. I have been Bobby. Until next time on Talking Comics. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs>